Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotic. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Marklin and I create the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit thereptilereport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is it's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our buy it now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the Marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum ad. It also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buy and selling? Use shipyourreptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder. Then visit ShipYourReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related. Welcome to another episode of Morelia Python Radio. Tonight, I'm very excited. Uh, we have uh, Scott Ebert that's with us. And uh, I guess with uh, Owen and I and uh, a few of the other people talking about our trip to Australia, 
we're going to get a little taste of what it's going to be like in 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 the upcoming year. So I'm really excited hopefully. to hear about. <laughs> what do you? No, 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 Stop, stop, oh, I will stop. leave your ass behind. Stop it. I, I did not think it, but hopefully that we would not go. I mean, hopefully that's what it would be like when we go. Of course, oh. you know, if I'm killed by a koala two minutes after we arrive, I assume you'll be a little upset and not enjoy it that much. So, yeah, that would, you that would know, be true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We'd take a day, we'd all be sad, and then we'd get to work. Yeah, so yeah, that's what I would expect. Back out to the field. <laughs> yeah. Oh, damn it. Next. So, you know... <laughs> poor guy. But yeah, that <laughs> poor bastard. Anyway. Feed it to an emu. <laughs> chuck, chuck me into a deer, chuck me into a crock pond and move on. But yeah. it, it, it's hopefully, you know, because obviously Scott has seen so many of the things that we would like kill to see when we go over there. And I'm just hoping that we have like at least like if we can get half the crap that he's seen or pulled out of a tree or whatever, I would be so happy. It'd be insane. So, but no, dude, actually for the trip, I have filled out all my passport paperwork. I'm going to go get my picture tomorrow and then I'm setting up to get the passport probably now so that we have it in plenty of time for when we have to get the tickets and stuff, which we were looking at somewhere around like January. So I'm ahead of the game. I'm I'm, I'm I'm trying, I'm trying to sell as much bread as I possibly can. So I get a huge bonus. (laughs) I mean, I'm just throwing bread in people's shopping carts. I don't care. It's like, uh, bread, you, you always need bread. Just take bread. Bread, you know? bread. I heard there's a storm coming. Get bread. So, yeah. I'm going to pray I, for so many storms this winter. Oh, God. Uh, so yeah. snowstorms. Because you know what? Everybody needs bread in a snowstorm. That's so. true. Um, so yeah, I mean, to see these, these animals that we keep and for, I guess to a certain extent, we sort of take for granted, um, you know, uh, and, and we work with them every day and I guess to see them in their natural environment, uh, doing yeah. what they're supposed to be doing is, I mean, it's a dream for me. Uh, I would imagine most of our listeners dream about it as well. Um, you know, just just the idea of going out and seeing a a carpet python on your fence or you know uh you know in your mailbox or <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. uh What's that laying on the car oh it's like it's like that picture we were talking about last time where the guys like I pulled up to get gas and there's a carpet python hanging out on the gas pump it's yeah yeah I've uh yeah, I've purchased quite a number of books um on different Australian reptiles just to sort of uh you know, take it in and sort of have an idea of what uh what we're in store for. Um but yeah, it's I mean it's like it's it, Australia's like the holy land for reptiles. Yeah, I mean, I, you know what I mean? It's like it's like the spot, you know. I mean, it, but it has everything from if, if you're interested in lizards, it's got lizards. You're interested in crocodilians, it is crocodilians, some of the biggest ones in the world. If you want, like you know, geckos, skinks, snakes, venomous snakes, it has everything. If you're even into the fuzzy crap, it's got shit like that too. That's unlike anywhere else in the world. So, you yeah. know, that's why we really want to go because it's going to be that big of an experience and that cool kind of a trick. You know, and I'm just hoping that we are not brutally murdered by like cassowary or something like that. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if we can avoid that, I'm, I'm gonna be so happy. It's ridiculous. 
So yeah, I I think that I have the advantage. If it tries to gut me, it's probably going to just kick me in the head. Kick your head, yeah. <laughs> just, you know, blow, it would be like, uh, what the hell. Yeah. yeah. So. so tonight we're going to live vicariously through Scott and his adventures and and talk about some of the things. Phone. Yeah. So. Yeah, you know, um yeah, we're going to uh <clears throat> we're definitely going to uh to hear some cool stuff for sure tonight. But before we get started, two things I wanted to make sure we hit on uh the Southeast Carpet Fest is right around the corner. Uh so I want to show uh send a shout out to those guys. It's uh 11/7 and um you can go check out their uh Facebook Facebook group page South East Carpet Fest page. Um, and it'll give you more details. So I guess if you're in the Florida area um, on November 7th or sometime around then, it would be behoove you to stop over and uh, hang out and talk Morelia with uh, your fellow Floridians. Uh, You'll have a you good know. time, we promise. Yeah. So, yep. so cool stuff. And then um, mm-hmm. we don't have – I don't have the exact details of all this yet, but um, – uh, some as some people may know I, I posted up a little um, a little blurb over on Morelia Pick of the Week last week, um, and uh, it had to do with uh, Bob Fudo, and um, mm-hmm. I, I I know that name from Jungles, um, you know Fudo Line Jungles. Yeah. Um, uh, he also does uh, Ocelot Breadlight and a few other things as well. So, but mainly yeah. the Jungle thing. So he's involved in Morelia. So. Yeah. Um, sort of, uh, I guess sort of, uh, maybe under the radar for the newer people that are coming into the, uh, Morelia family, so to speak. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, but Bob needs some, needs our help. Um, he has, uh, he has some medical issues that came up and, uh, we were trying to do a fundraiser of sorts. Uh, Jeremy, um, and Jason, uh, Balin were sort of putting this together, um, yeah, but uh, <clears throat> basically, there's going to be uh, some kind of auction. Uh, I think it's going to be on Morelia Pick of the Week. I know there was some back and forth on whether it's going to be on that page or another page or whatever. Uh, but rest assured, as soon as we know where it's going to be and all the details, um, we uh, we'll definitely point you in the direction. Um, but uh, so a lot of people. Um, a lot of people, well-known people, are going to be donating animals um, to the cause. So here's your opportunity to maybe uh, to get an animal that uh, that you uh, you've been waiting to get, and you know, sort of sitting on the fence. Well, here's your opportunity to get a cool animal and uh, support a good cause. So mm-hmm. um, once the details are ironed out about you know when and where and how long and who's all putting in. I know just to throw some names out there of people that said that they were going to be involved. Uh, uh, Mike Curtin, Nick Mutton, Jason Balin, Howard Redding, myself, Julie, you, uh, mm-hmm. trying to think who else. Um, I don't know. You a couple pretty much other... a few of them there. And I mean, that's pretty much the ones I can Brian, think of the top of my head. Brian yeah. Schaefer, uh, uh, there's probably some other people too, and I'm sure as the uh, oh, we're we're probably know. missing everybody or most of you, but it's, <laughs> yeah, those are the people we know. So it's 
and it, and it, it happened pretty quick. I'm very happy and proud of us that we kind of all rushed in there and are offering to throw some stuff out. Even some of us who don't really know uh, Bob too much. I think I've met him once or twice at a Tinley, spoken to him maybe once. I'm not even sure if he could pick me out in a room, but uh, it's a fellow herper that needs some help. So that's all you really need to say. And yeah, we're, we'll, we, you and I definitely are always happy to help in these kind of situations. So, and of course, use this uh, platform that we have here uh, to get the word out for that one. So, yeah, hopefully, when we know information, guys, we will make sure we pass it along to all of you, whether it be on the pick of the week on Ray Python Radio's Facebook page, on the website, on the Twitter. If I put a sticker on Eric's forehead and have him walk around, <laughs> we will find a way to get the information out to you all. Don't worry, but this is something that's uh, going to happen. So keep your eyes peeled. I know I'm already looking at uh, two yearlings that I'm probably going to chuck up there. So, Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking mm-hmm. about maybe doing a uh, jag head albino and a head albino, some kind of something like that or... You know, maybe yeah, a, I was doing, uh, yeah, caramel head albino a, and a something like there that. There you go. I was going to do a you caramel know. jag and a caramel, so that'll help. So, and, hey, hey, anything helps. And here's the thing even if you don't want to bid on any of the things that they're going to put up for auction or fundraising, if you just go over to the GoFundMe, there are links uh, all over the pick of the week and a few other places. Just give, I don't know, five bucks, ten bucks. Medical bills for this kind of stuff is. Uh, they kind of accrue pretty quickly and they can be daunting. So uh, yeah. even if you just empty out a jar at a freaking supermarket and use that, <laughs> go ahead and do it. I mean, yeah. you know, rob some of the smaller uh, reptile people that you know, just like punch them and take their money. Um, that'll work too. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so we're going to, we're just waiting for Scott to call in, but uh have you seen I sent it to you uh yesterday and uh mm-hmm. this was um probably one of the coolest carpets that I've seen in a while. It was the Exantic Granite Zebra Jack. Oh that thing, that the Ubermutt that you sent to me. <laughs> that was the I believe that was the that was the those were the phrases I'm like, that is incredible. It's a granite zebra jack. Oh, an Ubermutt. <laughs> And that was all I said, but it was, it was gorgeous. I mean, it was, uh, it, I, I'd be interested to see what the color, what happens with the color when it gets a little bit bigger, but it was, what was, again, it was a, uh, Exantic, Exantic, Granite, Granite, Zebra, zebra Jack. Jack. Yes. Yes. Hat for hippopotamus. And, so. <laughs> not, yeah. Not, uh, I know you're, uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're not a fan of the crosses or whatever, but that was a cool well, looking snake. It was, but then I'm like, well, you kind of lose the. It didn't have the exotic color that I've seen in like the exotic zebra that you have, or exotic zebra jags. It kind of had a different kind of color to it, and I'm interested to see what the color does as it gets a little bit older. And of course, I can't wait for people to start putting these things next to each other. Like this is a granite zebra jag. This is a exotic granite zebra jag. This is an albino. Granite zebra jag. I, I want to start seeing the, the differences, the progressions, the alterations. I think that would be cool. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, it was uh, Andrew Ivinson's uh, picture, but Paul Harris produced it. Um, Got it. So, uh, yeah. Um, and if you're looking for it, there's a uh, pic of it over on uh, the MoreliaPythonRadio.com um, uh, website. You go to the uh, Morphs of Morelia and then click on the Carpet Pythons, and it's the very last oh. one. Was this, so, was, it, was this a first because we had to add it to the website? So y- Yes. Oh, all right. Well, okay. Now it's more interesting. So, okay. I understand now. Ah, <laughs> uh, you. <laughs> uh, Why yeah. do I keep you around? Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but uh, yeah, so I thought that was a cool animal. Definitely, uh, definitely worth uh bringing up but um we have scott on the line so we're going to click him on Great. and let's get this rolling because he's calling in the future halfway around the world so <laughs> welcome scott <laughs> g'day can you hear me I, yes we can hear you and awesome so uh what what out of curiosity what time is it over there down there uh, wherever about, you are? about quarter past 11 in the morning maybe See, we uh, we feel so bad when we drag you Australian guys on the phone, but we have to keep doing it. So, um, while we got you, you sound so shattered about that, I <laughs> exactly. It's like you, who wouldn't want to jump on the phone at the wee hours of the morning and talk to us? So about oh, that's that right. that's <laughs> so, um, Scott, why don't you tell us um, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, and then what led you into reptiles. Uh, so basically, my, I mean, I I run a business over here called Nature for You, which is a, a wildlife demonstration business, and I educate the public on working with venomous snakes, and also making them aware of how to react around venomous snakes and other reptiles and things like that. So, so that's what I tend to do for a living. Um, but essentially, the way I got into that is that I was like everyone else, I suppose, running around catching very very small lizards and things like that as a really young kid, and then. I was about five years old and I caught my first red belly black snake, um, which is a huh. uh, a venomous snake over here, I suppose. But most of yeah, the, yeah, yeah, it's a pretty big one. So. Yeah, they're, oh, they're not too bad. They're all right. Oh well, of course. <laughs> so, so basically, um, I was sort of infatuated with the way they were, and and then um, I kept bringing home lizards and snakes and things like that, and, and every time I'd find a venomous snake, I'd bring it home and. Then Dad had come out and sort of grabbed the snake and uh, dispatched the snake, and then I'd get a sore bum for a couple of days, and then um, I'd uh, go back out again and go find another one and, and all the rest of it. Eventually, I, my willpower was stronger than his, <clears throat> and um, that was that I started keeping keeping venomous snakes. And so I started keeping venomous snakes from about 10 years of age, and then and I haven't stopped since. So that's that's me. And then I've always enjoyed taking photos and getting out in the bush and actually seeing the animals in the environment. And, you know, that makes a big difference when it comes to keeping. But we'll talk about that, I suppose, a little bit later on. So, yeah. yeah. Keeping venomous snakes since you were 10. And, and yeah. you, you were a kid catching them and bringing them home. Like, like my father would have shot me dead. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> well, I, come up for, I, I grew up in Melbourne. And in yeah. Melbourne, the um, that's in the southern end of the country, and yeah. you know, sort of on the cold, colder parts, I suppose, if you will. You know, you get fairly hot days in in summer, but it's it's, 
it's cold in winter, but not cold like snow. You know, it's just it's just cold and miserable. Um, so the only snakes you have around Melbourne are, are tiger snakes and brown snakes and copperheads and brown snakes and a couple of smaller leopards, but everything's venomous. There's no pythons or anything like that. So if you want to pick up a snake, it's it's a venomous snake, and you go from there. Um, so it's a baptism of fire, I suppose, if you will. Um, and then with keeping restrictions over here, um, it's very, very difficult, especially a young kid, to, to go and getting a licence and, and all these sorts of things. And and you're, you're very difficult to, to get actually things like pet pythons and stuff like that. And as a result, because of the, the licensing, the cost of the animals was, was through the roof as well. I mean, to, to give you an idea, a, a hatchling children's python or a hatchling carpet python at the time was going for about $600. Now... Six hundred dollars um, you know, twenty-five years ago is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you know, we, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of money. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, yeah. I see carpet python selling for, for fifty dollars and twenty-five dollars and things like that, and I think, well, you know, that's, that's all right. It's, it's not quite as bad as what it used to be. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So what was the first reptile that you came across? in the wild i mean i know you mentioned the red belly but what was like the first one that kind of stuck in your head oh that was the first one that really stuck in my head you know the, the red the, belly. obviously i caught little skinks and things like that but that was the first one that really sort of um set it off for me so to speak um you know they're, they're such a beautiful snake they're jet black with this beautiful crimson down the sides of them and um, you know, they're pretty well behaved um, and they're still probably one of my favourite snakes to this day. I mean, them and coastal taipans are my sort of two favourite favorite snakes in the world. So, um, you know, they're, they're pretty amazing animals. Wow. So, yeah. I don't know, you just said coastal taipan and it's like, okay, that's that's a big one. All right. So, um, what what animals do you currently work with in captivity like what do you have in your collection um well it, it's not just my collection um it's okay. my wife's also my wife's also a herper as well um and i suppose that it, it's fantastic that she's a herper but at the same time it's it's really bad for both of us as well because we have <laughs> we have arguments about how to keep things because we've, we've both been keeping i mean ty's been keeping for for 28 20 years plus and you know i'm i'm, I'm been keeping for 25 years plus and we've both got our ways of doing things and then i'm sure you guys are the same you've you've, you've all got slightly different ways of doing it you know there's, yes, there's an sure. old saying over here there's many ways to skin a cat so, yeah. you know, you, you, you still get there in the end, but it, it, you yeah. do things slightly differently. Um, mm-hmm. And the other problem we have as well is that we don't stop each other. You know, we have an argument of like, oh, oh, let's go get some parentes. And I'll come home with two parentes and she goes, well, why didn't you buy four? You know. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you? That is not a you bad know, why didn't you get, why didn't you just buy the whole clutch, you know? So, um <laughs> That argument. Uh, Normally, it's why are these two animals here? Not why aren't why are there only two? That is yeah, yeah, it, it's yeah. So it's um, it's it's definitely um interesting, but it, it's fantastic. I mean, she's a she's a brilliant herper in her own right, and you know the the amount of things that she's shown me and taught me over the years is it's it's fantastic. So um, but so as you can imagine, we've got a fairly large collection of, of across everything from from turtles and crocodilians through to, to frogs and 
venomous snakes and pythons and colubrids and you know five different sort of families of lizards as well so um right. you know everything from monitors to to geckos and pretty much everything in between so yeah um, i'm always but i suppose you sorry go on I was going to say I'm always interested in in when hearing people that have like uh very diverse collections of you know I mean there's diverse collections of pythons and then there's diverse collections of reptiles how do you yeah. juggle all that you know how do you is it difficult well, Yes yeah it is I mean I suppose this is the other thing about good having two herpes because I if I'm away doing something or Ty's away doing something she she can look after. She looks after everything. She except for brown snakes. She doesn't like brown snakes. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, she'll she'll deal with everything. So she'll be walking past, and you'll you'll pick up on small things in enclosures, and like like you always do. You know, you you'll see these little mm. things, and oh, that needs to be adjusted straight away, and you, and you get into it and do it. But she sprays, she feeds. I feed, I spray, you know, the geckos. There's a lot of, we've got a lot of skinks here. Um, so there's a lot of food that needs to be done there. There's pythons, you know, when it comes to egg laying or separation or gravid females or ovulation or anything like that. Um, all of those things are there. So it's a bit, I suppose, a bit more like a zoo system in some ways where you'll write notes on enclosures and things like that to each other and tell each other about what's going on. A bit like when you're doing handovers in zoos and stuff like that, and letting other keepers know what's going on in the same situation. Make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Cool. Very cool. Um. <clears throat> so. Uh. I mean, obviously. <laughs> we're going to talk a, l a lot about carpet pythons, suppose, you know, because that's what we kind of love and, and enjoy. And we'll hit on many different species uh, as we yep. go through the talk. But, you know, when it comes to carpets, what, what are some of the most memorable experiences that you have, say, you know, out in the field? Uh, anything that comes to mind that's... Yeah, I'll, I'll put a photo up in um, NPR chat right now, actually, of, of, of one that's... Uh probably one of the more memorable finds that I've had um, over the years. And that was a, a, a carpet python that uh, a mate of mine, Adam Elliott, who um, you guys have sort of heard about on the, on the, um, on the show every now and then through Nick. Um, yep. we, me and him have gone, gone back sort of 20, 25 years now, I suppose. And he comes up to Queensland and we go running around chasing critters in the bush. And one of the things that we were walking along this um, fairly fairly large cliff face, and then just to the side of the track, there was a, an 11 foot long carpet python, or 10 foot nine long carpet python that had just eaten a wallaby. So um, it's a, a pretty impressive sort of a beast. Wow! Um, <laughs> Holy crap! <laughs> this thing is huge. So it's, it's not quite like the, the carpets. You know, I, I hear about people talking about carpets um, about. Oh, you know, in captivity they max out at about sort of eight feet or nine feet, and you know you, you see something like that in the bush, and, and that's a pretty impressive uh, carpet python. So that's my kind of carpet. That's, that's <laughs> Eric's like that's that's twelve feet too long. I'm like yes. So, wow. so I get I do get a bit of a laugh out of people sort of when they turn around and say, oh yeah, carpets max out at about six feet or seven feet. And you know, you sort of go, well, no, not really. <laughs> so there's actually a there's a photo of this animal in the um, complete carpet python as well, um, as, I, as yes. I recall. Um, yes. 
So it, it was a pretty impressive beast. And the, I suppose the funny thing was is that where we were walking along, there's a walking trail on this cliff face, and there's so many people just walking within six feet, six you know six feet of this snake. And the snake's curled up in sort of dappled sunlight, and no one's seeing it. It's just curled up there, sort of digesting its its meal. Um, you know, they're they're a pretty impressive animal. <laughs> so um, we we got some photos of it and measured it, and and that was basically it. So and let uh, let that uh, large male off on his day. You know, you know, he had a massive head on it and things like that as well. So that's a pretty good find, I suppose. Uh, for carpet pythons, that, that's one. Um, First jungle carpets was was good as well. Um, it was a, a one of the roughest looking pythons I've ever seen in the wild, um, and you know I, was, I thought it was actually dead when I first saw it. I went up to it and I thought it was dead, and when it turned around and bit me on the hand, I realised it wasn't. Um, <laughs> well, that is one way to tell it's alive. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, wow. it, it was it was a, a very sick and sorry looking snake, and uh, you know. I think it was sort of on its last legs. It looked like it had, it had picked up a sort of uh, an infection of some description, and you know there was cuts in the side of it, and the, it had no muscle tone and all the rest of it. And you sort of look at it and go, "Oh, you poor thing." But at the end of the day, I mean, it's it's going to end up being food for a goanna or or uh, a bird of prey or something like that. So, and go back into the ecosystem. So, yeah. you know. But um, yeah, and then. Uh, a few a few weeks later, I saw saw a couple of other pretty carpet snakes as well up there, up up in that part of the world. So, you know, mm. it's it's certainly good getting out there and seeing these things in the field. And the I suppose the one thing that when you look at these things, whenever you go out and see animals in the wild, you bring so much home from that. You you see uh, subtle variances in temperature, and you know you might have a you might jump on the web and look at the the temperature at a place like Quilpy or or long reach or something like that where you get inland carpet pythons and see that you've got 38 or 40 degrees. But the the thing is, is those carpet pythons aren't living at 38 or 40 degrees. They're living in, in tree hollows that are cooler and they're living in places that are... And then in, conversely, in winter, they don't get down to, to 2 or 3 degrees. They're living in places, little uh, microhabitats that are, are warmer in, in winter as well. So... You know, it's it's always good in seeing them and seeing what they're doing and seeing what sort of temperatures they're hunting in. Um, now, for instance, I see quite commonly see carpet pythons sitting in ambush, in ambush positions, uh, coastal carpets and um, imbricata and and all these sorts of things. All these other carpet snakes, you, you see these things in really really cold temperatures, and they're sitting in ambush positions ready to feed. Now. These snakes are opportunistic, so if, they, if a, a rat comes along underneath them when they're sitting in this ambush position, they're going to, they're going to take this rat. They're not going to yeah. um, let it go by. And, you know, we're keeping our animals at this, you know, 30-odd degrees, 30, 32 degrees and, uh, all the time. And, you know, we're giving them a hot spot. We let them cool down a little bit. They don't always run at those temperatures in the bush. And one thing that I do here is we actually let our animals cool down a lot more for a lot longer um, than what I suppose convention is in, in captivity. Most people run run their, their six to eight week um, cooling off period. We're running about four months where the animals ramp down for a month, ramp up for a month, and then they're down for about two months in the middle. Um, and we do that with our young ones as well. Wow. So, <clears throat> so it's 
That's that's quite a long time. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the, the other thing is too, though. I mean, uh, it, it converts, it changes to your longevity of the animals as well. I mean, I've got an olive python here that I got from a, a guy by the name of Graham Gow, um, who was a pretty famous herper here in Australia, um, mm -hmm. back in 1992. Now, that was a wild-caught adult olive python back in 1992. Now, I've still got that carpet pie, that olive python downstairs. Wow. Wow. All right. Now, anyone who keeps olive pythons can give you a bit of an understanding of how long they take to get to 10 feet in captivity. They don't. No, they don't get to. Yeah. They don't get to ten feet. Ten feet long in a couple of years. They get to eight feet, nine feet very, very quickly, and then they start to mm -hmm. slow up. Um, <clears throat> and once they slow up, otherwise they just get very, very obese. Um, you, you look at those animals. You look at how big that snake was. That snake probably would have been born um, in the early eighties. So it's a snake yeah. that's over thirty yeah. years old, and yeah. you know it's a pretty impressive animal to be still kicking around in captivity and still you know, mates every year and, and does what it does what it needs to do. Um, it, it kind of shoots down the entire argument when people say that the pythons only live to be about 15 to 20 years old. This guy's yeah. 30 and still going strong, so uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that I think that comes down to is that the metabolic rate of these animals is if you feed them all the time and you keep them hot all the time, you you run them really, really quickly. And unfortunately, they're not designed to do that. They've got to go up and they've got to go down. They go up and they go down. That's how they've evolved for these millions of years. And for us to keep them at these constant temperatures, they, they do well at and they breed and all the rest of it. Um, for them to do that all the time, I don't think is actually really good for the health of the animals. But again, you know, I mean... There's a, an old saying that opinions are like assholes. Everyone's got one. So you know, <laughs> just because just because I say this is the case for me doesn't mean to say it's going to work for you guys or, or anyone else in particular. But it's it's just sort of what I've sort of um, gained, I suppose, from looking at wild animals. Now the other thing that I notice as well is that, um, and this is probably one of the most fundamentals, is that wild snakes very very rarely have. Um, fat rolls or, or really, really good condition. Most right. wild snakes that I see uh, are pretty um, pretty lean, I suppose. You know, they've got plenty of muscle, but they're fairly lean animals. Um, and generally speaking, most of the ones in captivity, and, and we're no different, our animals are, are on the overweight side as well, um, even though we don't feed anywhere near as much as a lot of other people as well. You know, you, these animals are so overweight in captivity and they're, they're doing all of these things. I, I do wonder sometimes how much how much they sort of gain from it. I know that, I mean, we, we experiment with keeping some stuff outside and we find that there's a preference for a lot of our pythons to go outside and they'll curl up and, and prefer to bask in, in sunlight as opposed to basking under heat lamps and things like that if you give them the opportunity. And the the scales on carpet pythons and things like that that are, are kept outside almost get a thicker feel to them, and they're a bit thicker and they're a bit heavier. Um, so I wonder if there's you know UV light does play a part in 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 these animals, and if there is a benefit for having UV over some of these snakes. So you know when you when when you talk about a, an animal like a diamond python, who basically that animal has evolved 
to use the sun, especially, I mean, it gets pretty cold there where diamond pythons are from, you know. Uh, yeah, freezing. Absolutely yeah. freezing. <laughs> you know, Jeez. so you would think that UV would play. I mean, I know that, I know they still survive and they still breed and they're still, you know, but is is there a, is there a component that's missing uh, from not having that UV? I, some people swear that like, if you take a Brettles Python, um, by putting it in UV, you know, the color's better or the, you know, they, they somehow become redder or, you know, have more contrast. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Um, there was a, when the, when Brettles first came into captivity, um, they were collected by a bloke by the name of Greg Fife. Um, Greg sort of brought quite a few into captivity on, on permit, um, back in the, the early, early to mid eighties. And you see, when you see a Brettles python in the wild, they're quite brightly coloured. You know, they've got really, really good oranges and things like that. And they're almost a bit like the hypos that are being kept in captivity now. And mm-hmm. within six to twelve months, those same snakes sort of dull right off, and they sort of become dull brown and, and and all the rest of it. Now, UV was thought to be maybe the reason for for that colour change. It could be diet related as well. You know, we don't really know. Um, but through selective breeding of you know people breeding the, the most orange orange brittle pythons and, and things like that as they go through, you're sort of starting to get those colours back to to what they're almost like in the wild these days. Um, but what do they what do they do? What what are people picking up on, or, or what are they not doing by not giving access to to UV light? I don't know. Do the snakes thrive without UV light? You know, when I mean, people are breeding these things and having no problems at all, and they're producing good, healthy animals, so they probably are thriving. Um, mm-hmm. But are the snakes missing out on something that we're not quite picking up on? I don't know. So, you know, I'm we're redoing a, a reptile building here. We're redoing a whole new room here at the moment, and one of the things I've installed into the roof of it is I've installed half a dozen um, large double glazed windows into the roof. And the whole right. idea of that is is to allow for moon phases, moon phasing at night, and right. actual light, let natural light into the building. Um, and so I'll have a proper photo period that goes that that has almost a sunset and a sun and a sunrise, and then at night too you're going to see changes in the room with how dark it is at night to with a a new moon versus how bright it is with a, a full moon. Um, so I, I wonder if that's going to make a difference, but, I mean, at this stage, I don't quite know. Ask me in a couple of, couple of years, and I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. What? After you've what done are, it a few times, yeah. Yeah. What are... Uh, <laughs> yeah, you said now you're talking my language. You say moon yeah. phases. Like, what, what are your observations with the animals in the wild when it comes to the moon phase? I mean, obviously, they're going to be more active when... Uh, a new moon, right? I would think, yeah. and it's yeah. dark, and you know. Uh, do you notice any other observations? Right. So when I I plan my herping trips usually around around the new moon. Um, the darker it is, the better it seems to be. Um, you seem to get a lot more activity on the new moons, and versus the full moons now. I've just got back from a trip where I've done three and a half thousand kilometres in four days, um, <clears throat> chasing chasing bits and pieces. And I mean, we saw we saw forty eight species of critter. Um, wow! So we didn't do it too badly. Um, <laughs> no. But 
at the same time, we could have done a hell of a lot better. And the problem was is that the two guys that I took out from Sydney, um, they flew up and then we went out in, in my vehicle and, and did a bit of a run through southern Queensland. Um, they'd chosen the time that they could get off work, so that was all fine. And I looked at the time and they came and I said, why didn't you... They'd already booked the flights. And I said, look at the moon phases. And they go, what do you mean? And I said, you picked it on the full moon. And, I said, and they go, oh, what does that mean? And I said... We're going out into the desert. I said, we're going to be able to drive a night without the headlights on. You know, I said, it's insane. I said, it's so bright out there. He goes, oh, oh, do you think it'll make much of a difference? And I said, oh, yeah, I think it will. I said, well, we'll see how we go. So um, so we had, we got very, very little snake fauna crossing the road. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw you know, eastern brown snakes and strap standard brown snakes and mulga snakes and and a few other bits and pieces, and we saw one carpet python, and that was one carpet python was when we got back to the rainforest in southeast Queensland where you've got a canopy cover going over the top where the moon phases don't seem to affect um, that closed closed light situation down in the bottom of a rainforest. You know, and it sort of makes sense too. You know, If you're in a rainforest that has a basically a, a big canopy all the way across the top, what the moons are doing... And, and how bright it is and all the rest of it isn't really going to change too much from a new moon to a, a full moon in the middle of a rainforest. So, you know, I, I think that probably has something to do with it. Um, you know, the other thing is too, I think air pressure is huge. It's a huge, mm. huge change. I mean, you, you look at um, egg laying in pythons and, and lapids and, and birthing in, in live-bearing venomous snakes and, and skinks and things like that, you'll often find that they tend to start um, laying on the on the on an air on a front on an air pressure front, um, so you'll notice that, and then you'll see a whole heap more activity out in the wild as well when you've got that air pressure front coming through. So it just seems to uh, click some little box in those animals' heads to to get them to really do some some pretty interesting things on those on those fronts. So, yeah. So when when you know that a storm's coming in. You just like run out into the bush and try to start finding whatever use you can find. But I can run it. I can run into my backyard. Yeah. <laughs> lucky, lucky bastard! I can run into my backyard. Never look. Um, now, yeah. one of the things I do if I if I can't get out, I, I've got uh, quite a number of things outside. We've got a lot of skinks outside and, and monitors outside and turtles and, and all those sorts of things and a few pythons that we're we're moving outside and. Those things there, well, I'll go outside, even if I can't get out into the scrub, I'll go out and I'll have a look in the pits and see what the pits are doing at night and and get a bit of an idea of the activity patterns of the animals. And it's amazing to see what's going on when you've got these preceding storms coming up and having animals outside that you can sort of walk out and have a look and go, oh, oh okay, these are moving tonight. Oh, all right. Well, maybe I'll go out and, and see if they're moving out in the wild as well and then jump in the car and then drive down the road. I've got a, a pretty impressive patch of bushland Um or I can go to rainforest, or I can go to uh, out into a dry sclerophyll forest within about half an hour of my place, and and see a whole different suite of species in each one. And you know, carpet pythons are sort of one of those ubiquitous animals that are, are running across through all of it. And you know, it, it's it's amazing to be able to see what's going on out there in the bush. Hmm. Wow, that <laughs> that is awesome. I mean, that is. Uh, have you noticed certain activities more? In certain other species, like the, do do skinks do skinks really go wild before a storm, or is it kind of everybody does their own thing? 
So. It's not everyone does their own thing, but I mean, I, I really like going out in the field with naturalists as opposed to, to mm-hmm. other herpos. I, I really like going out with herpos as well, but um, going out with naturalists that get excited about the bugs and, and birds and, and plants and all these things, you pick up on other other things that are going on, and you might see, you know, for for instance, there's a a particular sort of beetle that. Um, if you see them out, you tend to often see, when you see those out, you often seem to see lots of rust-gull snakes and lots of Stephen banded snakes. And so I might go out and, and have a look around for, for things in the rainforest and then suddenly I'm seeing this beetle. Now, if I'm seeing this beetle, then chances are I'm going to see rust-gull snakes and see these banded snakes. Now, the beetles just happen to be easier to find than the snakes, but mm-hmm. there's these other little correlations that go on. Now... The more time that you spend out in the bush, the more time you pick up on these these other relationships, I suppose. Or even though it might be something that's sort of happening almost like a uh, where they're both running along in that same thing. Whatever it is that, that triggers the beetles to come out, it also triggers the snakes. Um, what all of those are and for what each species that is, I, I can't tell you yet. You know, and I, <laughs> I think I'll die trying to figure it out, but you know, it's a good part in the process. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's exactly right. Keep trying. <laughs> so, huh, that's yeah, so, you know, and you, I suppose the other thing too, with with the experience, you get to to learn different methods which are more productive in in different habitat types, and mm-hmm. also uh, different conditions in those habitat types. So, you know, there's there's a, a fair fair view varieties, I suppose, of, of field herping and how to turn up critters, and you'll change your methods depending on what you want to find and also what the weather's doing and what the habitats are doing. So, um, like, if you wanted to go find, say, lots of carpet pythons, um, then probably the easiest way to find good numbers of carpet pythons is to go out on a, a warm, humid night, maybe with a preceding storm, and go drive the roads. And if you drive the roads, you're going to see lots and lots and lots of um, carpet pythons. But you could also walk along streams and you could see lots and lots of carpet pythons and you'll see frogs and you'll see this and you'll see that and you'll see others. Um, so it really depends on, on what you want to do. I find so much, I get so much more information from an animal that is either in ambush position or that is sitting um, undisturbed as opposed to an animal that's crossing a road. If you see an animal that's crossing a road, you've just mm-hmm. picked up a snapshot of like somebody walking across the street. You know, you've seen him walking across the street. But you don't really know what he's up to. If you ca- if you see that person doing something up against, you know, let's say he's painting a fence or something like that, if you see them yeah. actually doing something as opposed to crossing the road, you learn so much more. So, right. you know, it's good to see lots of animals crossing roads, but you don't learn a hell of a lot about what they're doing. Right. That That is true. So, you know. But at What's the same where? time, I mean, if you guys were coming out from the States... You, you, you want to see them. You just want to see the animals to, to begin with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. We're taking baby yeah. steps. Baby steps. Yeah. yeah. That's it. That's yeah. it. That's it. Tell us where we'll find them and we'll go. So. so when you see, when you find carpets, are you finding them, uh, are they up in the trees? Are they down on the ground? Is it a mix? Does it depend on the subspecies? Or what's what's your experience? Yeah. I suppose with with inland carpets, you tend to find metcalfi in in places where <clears throat> you'll get them. They usually around cracks, uh, cracks and also hollow logs and stuff like that. There was a guy by the name of Jeff Hurd who did some really really interesting 
um, radio telemetry studies on inland carpet pythons and was looking at where they, what they do and what they eat and where they eat and what they do after they eat and stuff like that. So um, reading some of his papers are, are really interesting. You know, they, they'll go down into burrows and they'll eat rabbits and then they'll come up and they'll sit in like, tree hollows. Tree hollows were something where they spend most of their time. And then there was a shift a bit like the diamond pythons from, from the rocks to the trees depending on summer and winter. Um, so, you know, depending on the species, you'll find them in different locations. So if you're going looking for inland carpet pythons in winter, you're best off going for rock crevices. If you're looking for them in summer, you're best off looking for hollowed out trees. And so generally speaking, you want to find inland carpet pythons around trees in summer and on on those rock ridges, rocky ridges in, in winter. Um, diamond pythons, um, diamond pythons you found on cliff faces and rock faces and stuff like that in, in winter, um, and also in people's houses, the roofs of people's houses in Sydney. And then... <laughs> And then sort of they sort of disperse out into the into the valleys and stuff like that and in, and in, through the summer months. Um, you know, diamond pythons you, you get even in places in some places in southeastern Australia you, you get where you get diamond pythons you actually can get them on cliff faces that are butting the ocean and they get sea spray on them and stuff like that. Um, you've seen I've got a friend of mine uh, that's found sheds that have been in caves that. Um, that have seawater go into them during high tide, and they've got wow. diamond pythons living in them. So it's pretty incredible, you know. Again, but you're not going to put a, not going to get seawater and put it inside your diamond python enclosure either. So. <laughs> no, I don't know. Maybe um, well, you, you, you might, you might. It might be a huge case. You know, if, if yep. my diamonds don't freeze for me, I, there is no option to worry about what I might do. But Get yourself a spray bottle not. and just spray them yeah. down with some seawater. Make ocean sound. <laughs> yeah, I mean, That's it, for sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then with regards to, to uh, coastal carpet pythons, um, which are the ones that I sort of have in my backyard and, and running along, I've got one that sort of lives in my shed and every time I go into the shed half the time I'm, I'm seeing stuff knocked over on the bloody ground where he's gone onto onto a shelf or something <laughs> like that and knocked things over and it's sort amazing. of curse him a little bit and kind of all the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What was that? I mean, that, that's awesome. It's kind of annoying. I can see where that would piss you off, but that's awesome. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, yeah. we, we've got a nickname for them over here. We, we call them crappets because they, they, they give you the shits after the while, you know. Nice. At the same at the same time, they they are an amazing animal. They are, they are beautiful snakes, and they, and they're so well well sort of camouflaged, and they do what they do, and they're they're really innocuous. And you know, one of the things that you know, I mean, I don't do it myself these days, but um, I have done it in the past. Is you. you get problem snake removers over here and they move snakes out of houses and stuff like that. And You know, one of the things that I was doing when I was a, a snake catcher is I was telling people to, to try and really try and leave the carpet pythons and, and the harmless snakes in their, in their properties. You know, um, if you move a carpet python, you move a male carpet python and move him from one, lo one location and then dump him down the road into a, a patch of bushland, you're putting him into the territory of another carpet python. Now, we all know how well male carpet pythons get along with each other. Um, mm -hmm. So you can imagine what's going to happen. So either that snake there is going to now fight and it's going to displace that one that, 
has just gone that you've just dumped in there or it's going to displace the, the one that's been put in there that's already under stress. Chances are that animal won't survive because it will try and move around to try and um, find where it was originally living and then that exposes it to more predators, it exposes it to cars, it stresses the animal out. If it stresses this animal out, then you have a lower in the immune system, the immune system starts to drop, and then you have problems. So translocating reptiles is really, really difficult, and it's not a great thing to do. So we try and convince people just to live with them. Now, it's a little bit difficult when, you know, a town like Brisbane, which has got about 4 million people in, in southeast Queensland, um, every second house has a carpet python living in it. Wow. That's a lot of carpet snakes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of carpet snakes. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot around. Henry, I'm that's trying a, to think. There's yeah, a lot. That's a you dream know? come so, true for the uh, East Coasters here. <laughs> that is oh, look, here in the look, States. You know what? You know, the first when I moved to Queensland from from Victoria, you know, ten years ago, I saw my first carpet snake. I was over the moon. I was so happy. And Herper said to me, "I said I found a carpet." And he goes, "Yeah." Oh, he goes, "That's nice for you." He goes, "That'll wear off pretty quick." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "What do you mean?" I said, "It's a carpet snake." And he goes, "You find a tiger snake, and I'll be impressed because we get tigers in Southeast Queensland as well." And right. I said. Really? And I said, You'll get it you'll get excited over tiger snake and I said, he goes, Yeah, you will be too, don't worry. And <laughs> in the in the ten years I've been up here I've seen two roadkill tiger snakes. Now oh. I reckon I'd almost do a backflip if I saw a bloody tiger snake <laughs> these days. Um yeah. you know, something that I used to catch I could go out in Melbourne and I could catch fifteen or twenty tiger snakes in the morning, pretty many, right. pretty much any day of the week. Yeah. Now it's something that I'd be super excited to see. So you get used to it. I mean, you guys have got um, things like timber rattlesnakes and mm -hmm. copperheads and cottonmouths and all these other amazing critters. I'd love to go out and see corn snake in the bush. Oh, <laughs> that'd be awesome. Come on over. You know, all of these. <laughs> yeah, uh, we never see those. They're not anywhere near where we live, but they're around somewhere. But, yeah, oh, yeah um, but I mean, what do you got? Eastern milk snakes and stuff like that up there, up in that part of the world. Um, yeah, actually, actually, uh, just the other day, uh, this uh, girl that I work with, she had a black rat snake in um, in under her house. So she, you know, because they know me as a snake guy, so she's like, "Can you yeah. come and get it?" And, you know, <laughs> like, oh yeah, it was still cool to see. You know, it's like you think about it, and you're kind of like, "Oh yeah, it's just a black rat snake." But when you see it in in the wild. You're like, oh, yeah, it's cooler. You know, it's, it's, it's really cool. It, so. It's like when I went up to Anchorage, I went to Alaska, and I got off a plane, and I'm like, holy crap, it's a bald eagle. And they're all like, you'll get used to it. And then by the time I left, I'm like, yeah, these things are like freaking pigeons. They're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like four on that park bench over there. So like, it, it's kind of like one of those, oh, it's awesome. And it's like, you'll get used to it. The carpet pythons are freaking everywhere out here. So I, I can understand that. But yeah, yeah, and, awesome. That's you know that that sort of stuff is is so cool. And I mean, I'd, I'd love to get over to the states and go on, and go down to Arizona and, and go chasing Gila monsters. And I mean, my favourite rattlesnake of all time are the the, the Mexican blacktails. And you know that those those blacktail rattlesnakes, oh, absolutely gorgeous. And yet, 
rattlesnakes to you guys are like, well, you know, a bit like carpet pythons to me. <laughs> they're like, oh, well, you see them and, and they're nice and you appreciate them. But, yeah, yeah. you know, you, you get over it, I suppose, a little bit. But, I mean, at the same time, I, I love being out in the bush and, and seeing all of the variation that we have here. I mean, we've got close on... 1,200 described species of reptile and amphibian in, in Australia. And I say described species, not, not species, because there's a hell of a lot of stuff that isn't described. There's a lot of stuff that hasn't been described yet. And I suppose one of the issues that that comes around from is that because we've got such draconian uh, laws over here that basically prohibit anyone doing anything out in the bush, um, it it makes it so difficult to bring a specimen I mean I, I caught some geckos while I was away just recently and there was geckos there that we were seeing that probably aren't actually a uh, aren't described but because really? we don't have permits to collect them we can't take them back to the museum and say hey this is probably undescribed right so then it remains as being undescribed okay wow. so we've got things like marbled velvet geckos where there um, is at the moment presently one species and then you actually look at them and you look at them in all these different localities and they're probably from what I understand from a friend of mine who's been doing some genetic work on, on, the, on that group that's probably going to be about 15 different species. So at the moment we've got one animal that we're calling one that's actually more like 15. Now that's a, obviously a... Um, a fairly extreme example, but there's a whole heap of other things out there that um, could be learned, and with it, with the legislation that we have in Australia, where it's so difficult to to do things like that, um, unfortunately, it, it becomes difficult, and we just it just gets left off to to be found to another day, I suppose. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. You know, I mean, we can't pick up animals. We don't pick up stuff in the bush. All right, I've got yeah. permits that allow me to. I've got some scientific research permits that mm -hmm. I'm mixed up with that allow me to to capture certain species of animal to to either identify or to collect a tissue sample for genetic work or uh, collect some animals for venom research. I've done that in the past as well, and I've done mm -hmm. uh, biological surveys which allow me to do some of these things and and handle some of these animals. But you, you're not allowed to touch stuff, and to, it's at the at the point where if you see a carpet python crossing the road you're not legally allowed to move that carpet python off the road so it doesn't get hit by a car. You're not allowed to touch really? it. Really? That's wow. how full-on our laws are. You know? Wow. Um, and it's it's so counterproductive. You know, you, we say conserva conservation, 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 and then yeah. we ban people and prohibit people from doing things. And prohibiting people doesn't do anything. It doesn't help help the situation at all. If you can embrace people to do things that uh, are going to be done through, whether it be through a herpetological society or, or in conjunction with museums and things like that, where they do things the right way and they, they do it really well, then you get this, um, you don't get this us and them mentality between hobbyists and scientists. And, yeah. you know, people can have a hobby and people an, an amateur, people can be amateurs. You know, they love what they're doing. That's basically what amateur means. It doesn't right. mean to say you're doing it any less professionally than, than a scientist that has sat there in, in a university and done a university degree for a few years. Um, if you've got passion for it, it means that you can still um, 
put out to that to that greater knowledge and hobbyists do all of this fantastic work with things like reproductive biology we wouldn't know half of what we know about any of the species that we've got in captivity these days if it wasn't for hobbyists and right. people keeping things you know i mean you guys would know so much more about keeping carpet pythons and keeping area giant carpet pythons than i hazard to guess than the the people in area giant would do now, people in Nirian Jaya, they get a carpet python, they probably don't know much about it. Whereas you guys have got an understanding of prelay cycles, uh, clutch sizes, how long the incubation is. You know, you could look at maternal incubation, you put data loggers inside clutches if you maternally incubate and see what temperatures these guys are actually incubating their eggs at and seeing if there's any differences. Now, all of this information you can gain from people and hobbyists that they're in captivity, keeping animals in captivity. And... The us and them mentality doesn't have to be there, but you know, unfortunately, it is there a little bit. Um, you know, I see some of these things going on in the states where, you know, we're legislating for venomous snakes and they're legislating for you know things like using the Lacey Act to stop people moving reticulated pythons from one state to another. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's so counterproductive. It's it's not going to help. It's not going to no. do anything. You know, stop just, it. <laughs> Well, they're still going to keep them, and yeah. The, how many reticulated move them? Yeah. Well, how many reticulated pythons, and how many Burmese pythons in the U.S.? Uh, you can't even count. Oof, that right. number. I don't so, even know. Well, my, my understanding yeah. under the Lacey Act is it means that you can't move them across borders, but you can still keep those animals in that in that state. Is that correct? You're yep. correct, mm -hmm. and you can move right. them within the state. So, but if you want to take so them let's out of say the state, you, you live in. So let's say you live in New York and you've got a reticulated yep. python and then you're not going to get checked as you go across the border into New Jersey. Well, <laughs> no, I there brought that reticulated no python there. in New Jersey, didn't I? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's, it's, it's not hard. It's, it's no, not hard. No. Who, yeah, and you don't have licensing, so you don't know no. sort of who's keeping what anywhere anyway. So that's all, you know, it's just so counterproductive yeah. and it just doesn't help anyone. One of the things yeah. that I never understood about you know, about Australia is the fact that I know that if I can understand importing animals, you know, because, uh, you know, invasive species and all that, I get that. But exporting yeah. and, you know, taking some of that and putting it towards conservation, because I know for one, I'd be broke. <laughs> if you could give me a... <laughs> oh, dear God. So much money. Oh. Oh, the amount of times I've got... I've got messages and emails and phone calls and things like that. Oh, can you just send me over one of these? And just like, I'd love to. No. I'm sorry, I can't. Does, does yeah. it make a difference? No, not at all. No. There is there is no reason no. why we shouldn't be able to export carpet pythons or export anything. I can understand saying, all right, well, we don't want anything getting out, so we don't want to import anything. Cool, right. fair enough. There's a There's an argument there. Yeah, but right. for exportation of captive animals, yeah. I see no problem with that at all. And, I, and at the end of the day, I mean, you guys have got rough-scale pythons. Yeah. I know of people <laughs> through the grapevine that have probably been breeding Owen Pelly pythons in Germany, is what, I've, oh what my, my understanding is. <laughs> right. I, know that, I know there's been Owen Pelly pythons in the US. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not like they're... They're not around. Yeah, sure. Got you know, it, it, 
Well, I guess that's my point because there's we still have those animals here. We have walnut yeah. pythons, black-headed pythons, olive yeah. pythons. You know, I mean, the list goes on and on and on, and and not even just that. I mean, I'm sure there's venomous species here that uh, you know people have that uh, geckos and blue tongue skinks. Well, there's, and, there's a you know there's a, a bit of a bit of a laugh, I suppose, going around that things like um you got these things called uh, pilbara rock monitors. Um, yeah. And right. absolutely gorgeous small small monitor that gets to about sort of eighty centimeters long, and you know half two thirds of that is tail. You know, it's an incredibly beautiful animal. And I know of six in Australia that are being kept in captivity. There's only six that are legally held in captivity, as my understanding is true. Wow. Right. Now, you guys have been breeding them in the states. Fifteen years. Right, maybe twenty years. There's more silver rock monitors. There's more, um, you know, you leucistic king orum over there. You know, the, the yeah. um, king's rock monitors. They're they're all over there. Yeah. King orum over here are a rare species. You know, there's wow. there's probably half a dozen people that keep king orum, and we certainly don't have any leucistics. They can't give them right. away over here. But um... well, there, there you go, there you go. So you guys have got really cool animals that. We can't have in Australia, basically. You know, yeah. you guys have got Australian yeah. stuff that we can't have in Australia. Um, yeah, it, it's it, it's absolutely full on. You know, there's things like that. And you know, uh, you look at some of these different things that you guys have, and you know, I suppose the grass is always greener on the other side. Oh, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I look at some of the stuff that you guys can do, and I go, whoa, and and then I'm sure you sit there and go, well. Yeah, he's still going out into the bush and finding a carpet. Yeah, you tonight. go out and you find it. Now, now, <laughs> yeah. Scott, okay, I can go out and have a look. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Scott, you live, so, near, you live near the portal that goes from Australia to Germany. Like, I, I hear it's a big hole that they just drop snakes <laughs> in all of a sudden they appear <laughs> in Germany. Yeah, like, it's called Australia Post, that? apparently. Yeah, oh, okay. There it is. Yeah, nah, look, I think that I think a lot of that's actually stopped after after nine eleven happened. They they changed a lot of the um, changed a lot of postage and things like that. And I think they X-ray packages a lot more now. And and from my understanding, is a lot more people have been picked up that were doing the wrong thing. Wow. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I I I find it really hard to believe that somebody can say that they're a reptile lover and then turn around and then post an animal, put an animal in the post to someone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Pretty horrendous way of shipping your animals around. I mean, we ship, I ship animals around the country here and, you know, I use um, heat insulated in, in uh, containers and then I double bag the animals and I put them on, uh, I usually put them on uh, uh, paper, shredded paper, and so the, the the bags sit on shredded paper, so they're they're cushioned, and then the shredded paper and crumpled paper on top, so the bags can't move around, they can't bounce, and then that right. container is then screwed shut, that's in a thermally insulated in, enclosure, so that if somebody leaves that that box on the tarmac for 20 minutes in the sun, the animal's not going to cook, um, right. or or get too cold. Um, now we're not dealing with snow like you guys are, and that, that's why I suppose you guys use heat packs and stuff like that inside the inside yeah. shipping shipping stuff. But can you imagine going out into the bush, seeing all these beautiful snakes that you've spent all this time seeing in the wild and and, and all that, and then shoving them into a 
you know, a, a sock or you know, you know, a cardboard box effectively, a, and then a, mailing a water it bottle. around the world, and then just hoping it's going to survive. You know, no, and then and then and then seriously calling yourself a reptile lover afterwards? No, you can't. Mm. You can't say that. You can't do that. It's a pretty selfish act. You know, it'd be a horrible way to die. Um, so you know, I don't have a lot of. Um, I don't have a lot of sympathy for people get busted smuggling animals. You know, um, yeah. you know. At the end of the day, I mean, there's there's legal ma- ways of doing it um, and getting animals out. You know, it just takes a hell of a lot of time, and you know, people like Terry Phillip that spent all that time um, dealing with Australian zoos to get Carinata. You know, yeah. he's done all that work. The reason you guys have got Carinata are people like Terry Phillip that put the hard yards into to get them for you guys. Um, and you know, such an amazing snake. I mean, we've got Caranata here. They're, they're fantastic. There's, yeah. I, I never really saw the the interest in them. Um, and then we ended up. My wife said, "I want to get rough skull snakes, uh, rough skull pythons." So, okay, fair enough. And when we picked them up, they're absolutely stunning. The subtlety of the eyes and the colour and all the rest of them. And boy, have they got a bite on them! You know, they, they, oh, well, you know oh, about well. it when you get put yeah. You know, huh. so, yeah, no, yeah, amazing critters. Yeah. So, now, have you ever come across them in the wild? No, no, no. There's a, there's a few grails for me. Um, there's a, a guy recently just actually got every Australian python, and he's there's a quite a few people that are at one or two left. Um, oh. And there was a guy by the name of Stuart McDonald who the other week, uh, about a month back, finally got a rough scale python, which was his last one on the list. Um, a lot of people are either missing ruffies or, or missing Owen Pellies. Um, Owen Pellies are probably the, the, the tougher one of the two um, because you can spend spend lots and lots of time there in, the, in their habitat looking for them and not find them. Um, <clears throat> and same thing with, with rough skull pythons as well. So um, for me, I think an Owen Pelly python is the is the one that I I want to see the most that I haven't seen. Um, I've got to get up to Iron Range as well and go and see green tree pythons. I, I haven't seen green tree pythons, um, and I haven't seen Perthensis either. I've, I've missed out on those when I've been over in WA. So, you know, at some stage I'll I'll go around and try and knock all the other ones over. I think Owen Pellys or, or green pythons will be the next ones, and then you know if I can jag something to go out into the um, and the Kimberley Chase and Rusko Pythons will certainly go and do that. So, you know, I'll, I'll get there eventually. <laughs> I'll, I'll get them all. <laughs> yeah. What That's was incredible. your What was your last uh, species that was sort of the 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 must catch and that you actually found? What was the? Yeah. Um, I suppose it wasn't wasn't the species, but it was it was to see. To see one in the wild, to see a big one in the wild, not not so much a species. It was a, a scrub python, uh, Amethystina. Um, what an amazing critter! I mean, they're so gorgeous. They're so interesting to see scrub pythons in the wild, and they're not the the absolute psychotic so and so's they are in captivity. Um, you know, you see a, a a beautiful scrub python crossing the road that's around eight nine feet long, and and it doesn't doesn't try and bite you. It doesn't want to try and kill you or anything like that. You see that same snake in captivity, that same sort of snake in captivity, and it wants to murder you. It, they are they are a, a it's um, true. Oh, they're 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 off they're their heads. Evil. <laughs> yeah. Give me a bloody typing any day of the week, you know. Um, yeah. 
Oh, you know, I, I don't use tongs for anything except for using them to feed rats off to, to snakes. Um, I don't believe in using pilstrom tongs on handling snakes. And I use big, long pilstrom tongs to feed the scrub pythons um, because I don't want to get bitten by them. They suck. You know, a two-foot-long, a two-foot-long, three-foot-long scrubby hurts like a bitch. I hate to think what it'd be like yeah, to get done does. by a big one. Yeah, so. <laughs> it, 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 scrubs are no fun no matter what size they are. Um, yeah, when you start getting into like the 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 the, te- the double digit lengthwise, it's death. So no 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 thank you. So, so I, last week I put up a video of a um, on NPR chat of a a good size scrub python, which was that was the one thing that I was hoping to to really see, um, and that was the one thing I was really hoping to see was a big scrubby, and <clears throat> about. Oh, 12 months ago now, I was out doing a snake catching course up at Mount Isa, which is out in the desert, and I didn't drink enough water. And what ended up happening is I ended up getting fairly severely dehydrated. And then when I got back, I didn't think anything of it, mind you, um, I had gut pain about a week later. And I went to the hospital because it wasn't really going away, and I ended up having a, an interception in my bowel <clears throat> and having 30 centimetres of my bowel removed. Um, so that was three months off work and rehab and, and all the rest of it. And you know, I'm only just starting getting back to to being where I'm sort of meant to be at, I suppose, um, yeah. in, in regards to strength and stuff like that. So anyway, I was doing wow. this job up in Cairns about four months later, and I was running around the running around the time when I was working during the day, so night time, herping time. So. Um, because I'm away from my family, I was like, right, okay, well, every night every night of the week, I'd be going out chasing critters because, you know, I don't particularly like watching television. I'd much rather go out and find animals in the bush. And so I was at a place called the Katana Wetlands, which is about oh, 25 kilometres north of Cairns in eastern Queensland. And I was walking around looking for frogs and snakes and crocodiles and all sorts of things. And I saw... I use a, a method called eye shining. Now I'm not sure if do you guys know what eye shining is over there? Do you guys eye shine yeah. or anything like that? Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. so, you know, for gators and stuff like that. If, if okay, you're wandering so you around, use, the, yeah, I mean, if you're wandering around the woods out here and something's eye shining at you, y- y- we have no idea what that is. Run. So um, <laughs> right, okay. it's, it's a New point. Jersey devil. Watch out. Exactly. <laughs> this is this, that shouldn't be happening. So it's, okay, well, okay. So. So I use eye shining. So eye shining for for things like crocodilians and stuff like that in mammals is really easy. With with snakes and stuff like that, it's actually a lot more directional. Um, so you, you use a fairly high powered LED head torch, and you try and get it down as close to the your, your brow line as possible. And basically, what you're looking for is you're looking for the reflection off the retinas of the animal coming back and seeing, so you can see it. So anyway, so I've got this eye shine off this this animal that was the eyes, I suppose, were about four, four and a half inches apart. And it was a, a whitish-coloured eye shine, which was didn't quite make sense to me because that size should have been a small crocodile. And, you know, that's usually quite orange. Orangey-red is their eye shine. So it didn't quite make sense why it was sort of silvery white. So right. as I get closer and closer to this thing, I start sort of making out the hedged head of it and can sort of see the shape of it and I'm probably about 30 or 40 metres away from the animal at this point in time and then 
about 10 metres away, the penny drops that I'm looking at a scrub python that is absolutely huge. Now, I've been told by my doctors at this point in time that I'm not allowed to pick up anything over two kilos. And right. I'm looking at this snake and I'm shaking with adrenaline. I'm just like, oh my God, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of thinking about it right now and I'm starting to get all fired up again. Um, and so the first thing I did is I grabbed my phone and I rang my wife and I rang her and I video chat. No, no, I video called her, right? Okay. I, did the, the, I did the video call thing on, on, on the iPhone, you know, the, or the FaceTime, yeah. whatever it is. And I said, have a fucking look at this. And she looked at it and she's just gone, that's a big snake. It's <laughs> just big. It's just freaking huge. Anyway, so I'm shaking like a leaf. I don't know what to do. Now, I'm about two and a half kilometers from my car. I haven't been dragging around my, my big camera gear or anything like that. I haven't got any bags with me or anything like that because, you know, we can't catch snakes over here or anything like that. So I, I haven't yeah. got anything with me. And I've only got my phone and I'm walking around and I'm looking at this thing going, oh my God, what do I do? <laughs> what do I do with this thing? So anyway, so I'm just sitting there watching it and then it decides that it didn't really like the head torch being on it the whole time. So it started to move away. So I've got some video. I just followed it for about 20 minutes, this this snake, and then eventually just it just went off on its own thing. But in that video, it shows you um, gives you an idea of how big this snake is. Now, this snake is is thicker than my calf, and you know I'm not the smallest fellow out there. I'm, I'm a little bit portly, should they say? Um, you know, I like my tucker. And <laughs> this snake is incredible. You know, it's just huge. And to see the size of this thing and, and see a really big scrub python in the bush, absolutely yeah. amazing. And so that, to me now, that is still one of those things that. I was never sure if I'd ever see a really, truly big scrub python because big scrub pythons get seen by people and, and people are assholes and they, they kill snakes. Um, so unfortunately, I, was, I wasn't I was sort of holding out a hope in seeing a really big scrubby. Um, I estimate its length to be between 15 and 18 feet. Um, I know other snake catchers who've seen photos and video of this particular animal that catch scrubbies all the time. And they've got measured lengths of scrubbies versus versus this thing. And they said, no, this thing's over five metres. It's a big snake. So to see a, a, a python that's over five metres long, which translates to about 18 feet, is wow. is absolutely amazing in the wild. You know, and you know this thing's eating wallabies and stuff like that in the bush. You know, oh, <laughs> it's wow. not eating rats anymore. <laughs> it's eating wallabies. <laughs> You know, wow! So, but that's that's probably one of the coolest things that I've seen in the in the bush, I suppose, of, of recent times. Anyway, um, I got an absolutely cracking jungle carpet python um, about a week later up on um, the Lake Morris Road. I put photos up of that, and it was basically a I suppose the easiest way to describe it. It's like a high yellow jungle carpet python. Um, <clears throat> it's a a pretty incredible sort of coloured animal um, that. Uh, has almost black tipping through the gold as opposed to a black snake with gold gold on it. You know, it's a pretty incredible looking carpet python. So, um, right. so that was good as well. And then, you know, first diamonds are always good. First olives are good. You know, all of these things are amazing animals to see in the bush. Um, 
you know, and and then for me, I, I mean, I really like venomous snakes as well. So, so going out and seeing, you know, brown snakes and death adders and mulga snakes and all that sort of stuff is also really, really cool. So, yeah. Right. Wow. Um, I was going to ask about uh, have you come across I come across uh, walmas or blackheads? Um, blackheads, heaps of heaps of blackheads. Um, blackheads are pretty common in a, in a few locations. Um, uh-huh. Around Mount Isa, you see them almost in plague proportions. In some nights, they're sort of everywhere. Um, I know one guy that that saw thirty-five black-headed pythons in one night. So wow. <laughs> he goes, he goes oh, <laughs> pushing them off the road. He goes driving around, <laughs> to get sick and tired of them. You know, um, well, I haven't had a night like that. The most blackheads that I've seen in one night is a is a four, I think, off the, off the top of my head. Um, you know, awesome critters, awesome critters, and you know, a lot of these things aren't aren't bitey like they are in captivity when they're in the wild. They don't try and bite you. They're not trying to, you know, they're, they're more worried about getting away from you as opposed to to, to try and do anything. Um, the other thing that you see with with a lot of these wild stuff is you you see different habitat partitioning between them. You know, your, your black-headed pythons are usually living in really rocky areas, whereas sand, uh, where Wyoming pythons are living in, in sandier areas. So they don't quite, even though they might be, uh, in the same area, according to a distribution map, they're not using the same habitat types as each other, and that goes for a lot of the other snakes as well. You look at um, jungle carpets. Why jungle carpet pythons so much smaller? Well, you've got scrub pythons where jungle carpets live as well. They're living in the same environment, so right. I think the scrub pythons are taking over the the ecological niche of what coastal carpets do. Where coastal carpets down south, there's no scrub pythons, so they get really big, and so they're eating things like wallabies and bandicoots and stuff like that. Whereas in North Queensland, where you don't have coastal carpets, you've got jungles, you've got jungle carpets that are quite small, and they're eating the smaller rats and the mice and plenty gales and handicaps and stuff like that. And your scrub pythons are eating the bandicoots and the wallabies and stuff like that. So there's there's all of these sort of little ecological partitioning that goes on between uh, between these animals and little relationships that don't really um, correlate too well and transpose into books and things like that and distribution maps. So um, that's always interesting. Um, with regards to Wyomers, I've seen one in the wild and that had been hit by a car. So oh, I can't say, I haven't seen a live Wyomer yet. This was the whole, the whole reason for going out, out, out where I was going just recently was to try and see a Queensland inland carpet, because I haven't seen a Queensland inland carpet yet, and I hadn't seen a, a Queensland Woma, so that's what I was after. I was hoping for both of those, but unfortunately the moon phases weren't too good for me on both of those, and unfortunately I missed <laughs> out. But, um, you know, wow. I know, Owen, you, you like your water pythons. Um, I do, my <laughs> my psycho water pythons that oh, ruin God. everything. Yeah. You yeah. know they're a rite of passage over here, water pythons? They're a bit of a rite of passage, uh, water pythons. You know, you, if you go out and see w- water pythons out in the wild, there's a place called Fog Dam up in the Northern Territory, and you know a lot of people go to Fog Dam because this incredible place has actually got the highest biomass of, of predators in the world. You know, there's more predators in at Fog Dam than there is in the Serengeti of Africa with its lions and 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 leopards and cheetahs and stuff like that. There's more predators in Fog Dam with with water pythons, you know, it's absolutely amazing how many water pythons are there. And like the the dam wall at Fog Dam is about a oh, 
maybe a kilometre, I suppose, 1,000 metres or so. <clears throat> and you drive out and you'll usually see two or three water pythons on the way out and two or three different water pythons on the way back. And then you see death adders and crocodiles and, and all sorts of other cool stuff there. That's awesome. And it's always funny when you, you see somebody who's never seen a, a water python before. Um, is they get all excited. Oh, it's a water python! And like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and you laugh about it because you know what's about to happen. So they get out of the car and they go up to the water python. And then one of two things happens first. Now, both of them always happen, but one of two things happens first is they get musked, and they get musked beautifully. And then you sit there and you go, mate, I don't, I don't when you're getting back in the car smelling like that. You know, you absolutely stink. Yeah, right. That's so water pythons, you know, they they piss and shit everywhere. And then, and then the other thing is that they bite you. So you're either going to get bitten first and then get shat on, or you're going to get shat on first and then get bitten. So it's one or the other, or both. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, most likely both. You know, most likely both. Sense. So yeah, so it's a bit of a rite of passage. But believe it or not, coastal carpets will do it as well. You know, coastal oh. carpets mask can mask mask you as well. And you know we. We were out one night and there's this um, quite a large coastal carpet python. I didn't see what it was initially. It was just it was sort of underneath a bush and I could sort of see a snake getting away. So I just reached in and grabbed it. And as I pulled it out, it was a, a coastal carpet. And <clears throat> we were doing some, this was a, um, a snake call out. And so as I pulled it back, it's pissed and crapped all over the front of me. And... I got sprayed. It was like I'd been stuck, stuck painted across across the front by this bloody carpet snake. And I ended up throwing the t-shirt in the bin. I just threw it in the bin. It just yeah, that just bad. It I couldn't wash it out. I tried yeah. washing it. I hit it with the hose. It was just, oh, it was. And and let me tell you, it doesn't taste very nice either. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, they're, 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 they're psychos. Yeah, little psychos. Yeah. yeah so um, olive pythons. They're almost like the exact opposite. They they don't tend to bite. They don't tend to to wee or urate everywhere. They tend just to to, to do what they do. They, I suppose they get to a size where they think, you know what, no one's really going to harass me anymore, and they start to calm down a bit and they don't do too much. So, so they're an absolutely amazing snake. They're probably one of my favourite snakes to see in the bush. Is olive pythons. I, I I do love mine. I've only ever seen them in their cage though, so it's. Uh, <laughs> I think I think yeah. seeing animals that I've kept personally where they're supposed to be would be like this really cool thing for me. So uh, definitely jealous you get to see olive pythons cruising around the wild. So yeah, well I, I mean the, the one thing that you, you don't see yeah. many of them. Yeah. Like you, you do send us when you see them. You you don't see them in huge numbers, but um, when you do see them, it's always a special experience. Um, you know they're they're an amazing amazing critter, and you know they often live in um, sort of rocky environments and and places like that where you you see um, there's usually deep deep cracks and stuff like that, and they'll get to any of the cracks, and they'll they'll live in areas that are actually quite cool um, versus versus sort of hot environments that that people think that they're they're living in. They're living in these really hot places. They're living in quite cool environments, and and mm. come out at night to to breed. So yeah. Um, so yeah, so so wow. is there any other questions you got for me for now, or what, what do you want to talk about now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Because I'm just, I, I told you I ramble. I'll just ramble along. No, no, but that's, you've got to understand, that's what we live for on the show. If we can just get you <laughs> on and say things and let you go, nobody calls to listen to us talk. So, yeah. So, <laughs> why? Yeah. Um, Mate, I, the thing out. is, is I could talk underwater. So, you know, I'll just keep going and you guys are just not going to hear anything. So, you know. <laughs> I, uh, um, you know, I'm just putting a couple of photos up on chat now of a couple of... Um, Wild things. Oh, I put up that um, jungle carpet that I was talking about before. That that, oh, um, wait, wait. that gold colored thing. That picture you just put put up is a jungle carpet. Oh uh, no, that's a that's a silver coastal. That one. Um, oh thank God. There's, okay. There, there, no, there's a jungle. There's a jungle for you there. Scatter everything I've ever thought about jungle carpet pythons and ruined my entire life. But there we go. <laughs> wow. Oh no, you you don't understand. We've got. Um, We've got uh, there's a breeder up here that breeds local specific jungle carpets, and he's got these things called uh, gelatin black and white uh, gelatin oh, carpets, yeah. which are black and white, and we've yeah. got those, and we got the the last pick of his litter, um, or the last pick of his clutch when we were up there last time, and he had basically two buckets for us to pick from: one bucket of females, one bucket of males, which is how we like to pick. How certainly how I like to um, how if I'm keeping going through and sorting animals to keep. I'll put all the males, I'll sex them all, and I'll put all the males in one, one container, and I'll put all the females in another container. And then from that, I can look at those and go, that one is the standout in that one, and that one is the standout in that one. I'll take those two. They'll be the ones that I, I tend to keep um, because I, we don't have the room to, to be raising up 20 or 30 babies at a time each time and, and not... Um, and, and sort of hope for the best. Um, so, so that's how we sort of tend to do it. It tends to work pretty well. Um, you end up yeah. getting some really nice, high contrasting looking animals. So, um, I'll put some photos up of those gelatins when I get around to taking some photos of them. They're just starting to get to size now. I'm getting some size on them now, and they are the crispest white and the darkest black that you've ever seen. They're absolutely amazing. You know, they're really, really incredible looking things. Um, and I. I used to think, oh, I like black and gold jungles. No, I like black no. and white jungles. <laughs> <laughs> I really like black and white jungles now. They're stunning, absolutely stunning. So, yeah, I've, yeah, I've seen some pictures that people have sent me of some uh, captive bred ones from down there. and uh, Man, they're they're pretty spectacular. Um, man. Uh, is that an inland? Uh, that yeah, that's up? a macapo that there. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love inland. Yeah. God, I need inland. But, wow. all right, I'll get there. I'll get there. Have right. you noticed? That's it. That's it. That's it. Sorry, I go. I was, I was going to say, have you noticed um, where do you uh, a difference in the coloration? Like, we've, I've heard that, uh, I forget which way it is, but it's either north, the northerns yeah. have more red coming in? Yeah, so the northern ones have got lots more white and lots more orange. Um and so that's why I was in Western Queensland looking for these things. <laughs> I was like, I really want to find one. And it, it, and it would have been like a nice little, um, nice little thing before the show to be able to go, hey, look at what I found yesterday, you know, um, you know, and stir you up. I mean, as it was, I stirred you up by throwing up that video that I found of that um, that coastal carpet the other night, and showed, sort of showed oh, you yeah. what it's all about to come out herping in Australia, I suppose. Um, yeah. But, you know, the one thing is about us over here is that we, um, we're, we're shit stirrers. We're a nation of shit stirrers. We're going to stir you up and all the rest of it. And, 
you know, we we are going to to get you incredibly jealous, and we're going oh, yeah. to you know, you, if you come over here. I will ensure that you are you've never been quite as tired as you've ever been before. You know, it, it does absolutely ruin you when you go out there. Being <laughs> It'll be so worth it. It's so worth it. What's that? It'll be so worth being that dog tired because you know you you rile us up. What you don't realize is we're we're really easily pleased. I mean, you're like I'm just sick. Somehow it's something to do with a carpet python. We're like, oh my god! I mean, like, if you, I want to yeah. see that video of you with the scrub because yeah. I think I would tweak over that. I mean, you could, honest to God, take a picture of carpet python shit that you found <laughs> in the wild and post it up on the pick of the week, and half the people would be like, oh my god, wild carpet <laughs> python crap. So it's, we're really easily pleased. So yeah, well, as I said, mate, we call them crappets over here for a reason. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> there you um, go. But yeah, look, I mean, look, amazing, amazing animals, and and it's such a good experience. And I mean, I love going out with people from from overseas and, and other states and stuff like that as well, because you get that enthusiasm from you guys, and then that enthusiasm then sort of spurs me on to do more and find more and, and enjoy more enjoy it more myself um right so you know going out everyone going out together and, and getting out in a group and, and going out and sort of going seeing animals in the bush is a really really awesome experience and you know it'd be great to get a few yankees over there and uh, over here and, and come over and do some herping and, and see some crews yeah. and you know um you know, i'm sure we'll be able to rope adam elliott into it and myself and maybe a couple of others and Take a take a whole heap of you guys out across and go and find a whole heap of bloody snakes, um, awesome. and get stupidly tired in the process and and have a lot of fun. Fantastic! <laughs> it, it's probably a good idea to bring somebody like you around because I would be the idiot that would grab what I was thinking was a woma. Well, remember remember the laws over here. You wouldn't be grabbing anything. Ah, I can't touch it. You're right. That's another reason. <laughs> you, wouldn't, I would, you, would, you wouldn't you wouldn't grab anything. You wouldn't touch, touch a thing it. over here. You know, you've travelled all the way around from the other side of the globe to just just look. You know, <laughs> it's a real test of your willpower. That is, that is a very good point. <laughs> oh shit! I can't even say that with a straight face. Um, nice. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely nuts. Um, you know, you see all of these critters out there and, and all of these things that are that are around and. and you know, you guys, you get so much from it. And I suppose what you don't, what it's so hard to sort of um, articulate what you're going to get from it. The one thing that you are going to get from it is the feel of what it's like to be out there when it's humid and warm and, and all the rest of it. I mean, to give you an idea at the moment, it's probably 27 degrees outside at the moment here. And it's just it's about to storm again. Um, the, the ground's all wet and all the rest of it. And I'm just looking out. And half of the lizards are out in the pits, and it's it's about to rain again, you know. So this is this is what activity periods are like over here. We've got this 75, 80 percent humidity here at the moment, and everything like that's all out and about and and doing bits and pieces. So you know, it's it's pretty cool to see what things are doing in the bush and and having that feel and seeing what the habitat is like and all the rest of it, and then seeing what the animals are doing and then looking where sheds are. I mean, sheds can tell you a lot. Tracks can tell you a lot. Uh, all of these other subtleties can teach you all this other stuff about the animals and what the animals are doing and and where they're going and all the rest of it. So, yeah, yeah. I think um, 
I think it's sort of like uh, you're absolutely right that the thing that I want to gain most from it is to understand. I mean, it's one thing to read in a book that it's, mm. you know, this is the temperature and this is, you know, how hot or how cold or how humid or whatever, but it's a, it's a totally different thing, uh, you know, to be there, to experience it, to feel it. To have a temperature gun and shoot it on the on the rock and see how hot it is, you know, or be there at night and see how cold it is, and you know, uh, or see. Yeah, I I think, this is what I think. Oh, even right. seeing, um, uh, just you were talking about earlier about how um, uh, not underweight, but you know how skinny or thin these snakes are, and you know we're used to these, you know, we probably would think, oh, my God, the thing's got to eat. Go get a rat or something. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, some of these photos that I'm, I'm you know, you're, you're saying that I'm putting up photos of, of bits and pieces now on the, on the chat there. These are all wild snakes. They're not they're not um, captive bred or anything like that. And, you know, these animals are, are skinny in places. They're not, they're not, um, they're not all fat and, and things like that. Um, <clears throat> and... You know, we see a skinny snake in captivity, and we automatically say it's sick. That, that's what we what we think. You know, yeah, oh, that's that animal's. You know, it's in bad nick. It's it's not being looked after correctly, or or whatever it is. No, that that snake is is how that snake looks. That's what that snake should look like. Now, I'm about to put a photo up of a, a six foot coastal carpet. Um, well, it's probably not a coastal. It's probably an actual wild intergrade between a coastal and a um, a jungle um, from a place called Paluma. And if you look at that animal, that's six feet long, and it'd be lucky to be a kilo in weight. Wow. Jesus. Okay. That's, that's an adult male. <laughs> What's that? Wow. That's my size carpet. <laughs> yeah, there you, know? you go. You've had it's a, it's an adult male. Yeah. Wow. Jesus. That's a so, you know, I'm sure that they get bigger, but right. that's an adult male snake. Um, now... How many coastal carpet pythons that are six foot long in the U.S. that weigh under a kilo? Uh, under, a th- under a thousand grams. Um, Probably not a Eric lot. Eric doesn't have any that are six foot, so <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Now, the the other thing that I look at as well, and that I notice in in carpet pythons, is you look at the the head size on a wild carpet snake versus mm-hmm. a a captive carpet snake, and the heads. Are always in uh, are always in proportion to the body. You know, they're not they don't have these small small heads, and then they go to a neck that is, is almost indistinct, which is what usually happens in captivity. Versus um, in the wild, you look at them; they've got these big chunky heads. Um, you know, you can see that snake there. It's got a head. It's got a neck, uh, and the head is actually larger than most of the forebody of that animal. Whereas in captivity, you generally see the forebody. As soon as you get to the head and you've gone that little depression in from the neck, it starts to get fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter to these hugely overweight uh, snakes. Now, I think I honestly think what that means is it's a bit like people. People that are uh, quite overweight tend to have a shorter lifespan. Um, they, they seem okay and they're healthy and they can breed and they can do all of these things, but they're not as healthy as a, you know, a little Japanese fellow that... Eats, eats well and and doesn't overeat or anything like that and isn't incredibly obese or overweight or anything like that. So, I think there's a lot to be said for, um, 
sort of correct weights on animals and correct feels and and seeing seeing what muscle tone these animals have now i think the other thing that we try and we're trying to get away from them when we've got a lot of snakes in, in racks here like like everybody because it, it's a good way of keeping animals yeah. i say it's a good way of keeping them i don't think it's a great way of keeping them i think the europeans have probably got it got it a bit rider with with keeping things in, in enclosures where you can really see what's going on and uh, and all the rest of it and so this this new snake room that i'm building at the moment is incorporating a lot more enclosures into its design um, so i can actually observe a lot more about what's going on and rather than having to pull a, a tub out and, and see what's going on inside a tub um, right but I, I don't know. Time will tell, I suppose. I think the other thing is too is I, I like being able to observe the animals and see what they're doing without necessarily, you know, moving their whole world out to see what's going on because I've, I've opened a tub. Um, but you know, I, I just don't know. <laughs> it's all it's all these questions and quandaries that we have with ourselves about these things about whether, yeah. yeah, you know. But at the same time, if you if you never give it a go. You're never going to know either, so you're better off giving it a crack and and seeing how it turns out. Sure. Um, do you have yeah. any thoughts on one of the uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about recently, and I've I've sort of done this since last year breeding, as far as cycle feeding. Is that do you think that that is? Are you observing anything like that in the in the wild? Is that something um, that? Uh, yes, yes, definitely. You don't see. I don't see carpet pythons. I mean, I see carpets fairly regularly, and because I go out, I'm into herping in general. So it doesn't matter if it's um, if it's a good night for for carpets. It might be a good night for something else or, or whatever. And in winter, I'm quite often going out looking for frogs because a lot of our frogs breed in winter. Uh, so that so you, you know you end up being trucking out into the bush looking for frogs and things like that and other bits and pieces. And so you you do see you do come across carpet pythons in in winter and and stuff like that. And I'm yet to see a carpet python in winter that's been in, in ambush posture. And I'm yet to see a carpet python in winter that's got a feed in its in its gut. Um, okay. When I see carpet pythons, and you see them quite often out during the day as well. You know, we think of these things being nocturnal. They're, they're not so nocturnal. They they do come out a lot during the day. Um, what they're doing is they're curling up and they're basking in in, and they've got usually quite a tight coil, and that tight coil is is something that is um, reminiscent of of keeping keeping the animal uh, retaining heat and, and being able to, to gain that heat. And they're usually basking basking in dappled sunlight, so that's what they, I suppose that those beautiful carpet markings are. You know that you know you look quite look from a um, look across a forest floor. And that dappled sunlight that's coming down, it's you know it's got light patches and dark patches, and so it looks quite similar to what a carpet python looks like on its back. So they'll often situate themselves sort of half underneath a bush or in between some tree roots or in between some rocks or something like that, and um, usually have the head sitting up on the top in the sun, okay. and then they'll they'll have a position they'll position themselves there in such a way that they are sitting there ready to go, waiting for just the temperature to come up. And then as it starts to cool off, then they'll go back into wherever they were, whether it be a, a, a rock crevice or, or something like that. The other thing that you'll sometimes find, and I've seen it a couple of times, where they'll throw out a coil. So mm-hmm. they'll still be in a rock crevice or still be in a tree hollow, but they'll just have a coil that's hanging out. So they're, they're getting... Obviously, they're, 
using that coil to heat the blood up in that particular section and then the rest mm -hmm. of that is then going back into the rest of the animal now. Um, I've never seen it but I know of people that have found black-headed pythons um, just with the tops of their heads exposed in tree hollows. So the, the snake's been inside a tree hollow and just the top of its head's been exposed. So the, the black from the head is then allowing the snake's brain to heat up and then get the blood flow down and then actually heat the whole snake up. Um, right. So you, you get those sorts of things happening as well. Um, so, you know, but again, I've never seen them feeding in winter. So if you're not seeing them feed in winter, then they're not eating in winter. Now, if their brains aren't saying, I should be eating, but they're still getting warm, then cycle feeding probably is something that's actually going on because they're not looking for food. They're not looking for yeah. food and they're, they're run down. The other thing that would happen as well when they're not... Um, I'm uh, guessing here, all right, it's an educated guess, I'm imagining that their metabolism is going to slow down as well. Now, what tends to happen is that when you feed a snake, their metabolism, they go under the heat and their metabolism rises to process that, uh, digest that meal. So if if you've got an animal that's that you're keeping the metabolism high all the time, all the way through, you're going to get good growth rates and you're going to get um, weight gain and, and all the rest of it. But you never give the animal a break. Right. Which isn't what's going on in the wild. They're always having that break. Now, we can, you know, most of us, do do silly hours, I suppose, with our with our work and our life and all the rest of it, and we're burning the candle at both ends. And you see people if they run ragged for for six weeks or eight weeks at a time, you see them. They start to really become. They almost look a little bit sickly in their appearance. They start to to get run down all the time. You, you can see that. You can see that in people. And then they go away on a holiday and they relax and they de unwind and detention and all the rest of it. And they they come back and they're better than better than ever. Right. Mm -hmm. We're effectively doing that with our snakes. If we're right. always feeding them and always keeping them warm, we're always keeping them going. They're never getting a break. Now, right. when they have that break, that's when they're doing the repairs to their body. You know, they're, mm -hmm. they're repairing their muscles, they're repairing their skin, they're allowing their circulation to slow down, they're having those breaks that they should have. Um, how how detrimental to to them is it? I've got no idea. I don't know. Right. I don't know how you'd even test for it. Um, you know, I suppose that's that's where you'd need a, a a physician, a, a physicist, or a, um, a physiologist, or something like that to to go through and, and do all those sorts of tests that they do on on snakes. Right. You know? Right. There's, there's a um, a really fantastic book um, that I don't know how available it is in the states. Called the Biology and Evolution of Australian Snakes by, by uh, Dr. Alan Greer. Okay, it was published by Surrey Beatty and Sons. It's it's now out of print, but you should still be able to get copies of it if you if you hunt. Um, it's got some of the most amazing data on wild and captive snakes in that book. Hmm. It's absolutely amazing. Um, now, <clears throat> it's something that I use all the time. Because they actually, you know, Alan's, Alan was a, a very meticulous sort of fellow. Um, and he, even in his references and stuff like that, he's made references to the data of whether it's wild or captive. Um, and it talks about uh, things like the, the work that Rick Shine has done with looking at um, follicle growth in, 
in and reproductive testy size in uh, testy size enlargements and feeding and all that sort of stuff in in wild snakes. Mm-hmm. So you could you could see these reproductive sort of stuff in museum animals. Um, and so he's listed a lot of that stuff in his data as well. Um, and then there's a whole heap more besides the stuff that Rick has done in there as well. So it's an amazing book that's got all this information. And I would be really interested in seeing um, seeing if there is any correlation between looking at feeding at specimens that have been collected from museums that have got prey records within them and seeing if they were collected in winter. Now, I would have hazard to guess that the ones that have got prey records in them are probably coming from the warmer periods of the warmer periods of the year as opposed to during winter. So I think cyclic feeding is a, is probably something that's fairly important. Um, certainly with some of the island species um, where you've got, you know, I mean you guys have got uh, those boas that have the um, have the birds that come down and, and basically they're nesting at a for for a certain period of time during the year. We've got um, Mutton birds that nest on islands in Bass Strait, where tiger snakes can only eat for a few few weeks of the year, because other than that, outside, outside of that period, the the birds are too large for the snakes to eat, and so they can go for 10 to 12 or 10 11 months without feeding at all, and then they have this six week to eight week period of of absolute gluttony where they they're eating as much as they can to to get them through for a year, because they do not eat for 10 months of the year. Um, their temperatures are up there but they don't eat right. for 10 months of the year. So I, I do wonder if you get things like that in Imbricata. Um, you know, there's, there's populations of Imbricata that live off to the islands of the south, uh, south of Australia, um, that are maybe eating in, in smaller, at smaller numbers at smaller times, or whether they've got birds coming over and nesting on those islands, I'm not quite sure. So I think cycle feeding is, is, is something that's important and certainly worth looking into. Um, so yeah, that's 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 my my best guess, I suppose, on that particular matter. <clears throat> okay. Cool. Very cool. Good, Owen. So, so we got a question kind of emailed over to us from our friend Rob Stone. Um, yep. And he wanted to know if you've kept uh, any monitors or what is this? Pygods? Pygods? There you go. Back. Yes. And yes. Okay, so monitors. <clears throat> um, we like big monitors here. We're, we're not we're not small small monitor keepers. We, <laughs> we leave the little ones to other people. Um, right. So we've got we keep Parentes, lace monitors, uh, uh, yellow spotted monitors, which is Varanus panoptes, um, and we have Spencer's monitors here and Rosenberg's. They're our large monitors that we keep. Um, and then in regards to pygopods, we keep common scaly foots, which are the largest Australian pygopods, and actually be the largest, the world's largest pygopod, um, which get to almost a metre long. Um, they're they're incredible beasts um, that sort of flip out and um, <laughs> that uh, are quite difficult. You know, putting them together, you keep them a bit like a snake that, that eats crickets. Um, you put them in together, and you've got to be very careful because the females brutalise the males and. You know, they'll oh, rip tails okay. off and do all sorts of stuff. It's it's horrendous. Um That's lovely. You know. Um and then parentes, we you know, we're always worried about the parentes, um, about them sort of ripping into each other. I mean, they're a pretty expensive animal, they're about they they sell for between fifteen hundred and two thousand dollars each year. So 
you know, you don't want a $2,000 lizard ripping another $2,000 lizard apart. It's just, it's just not a good look. Um, you know, so, yeah. But, well, I mean, I suppose that's the beauty of us being where we are in Australia. I mean, Brisbane here. It's um, and it's not Brisbane, it's Brisbane. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you and your bloody... And, and Womers. You hear people talk about Womer pythons. It's Woma. You know, Woma. but that's all right. I like it. Woma. <laughs> Woma. Yeah, yeah. And we call it albino, and you guys call it albino. So we can we can go through this the entire time. But yeah, but yeah, 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 we can do that. But at the end of the day, right? You say Woma python. Yeah, that's the name of it. And it's not Brisbane. It's Brisbane. Brisbane. Okay. Got it. Brisbane. Nice. Brisbane. Got it. All right. Okay. Don't screw it up. It's like, it's like me. We're about to you in Philadelphia or something, aren't you? Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> Philadelphia? Yeah. It's like me yeah. saying it's Philadelphia or something like that. It's, it's just not right. I can say it's yeah. Philadelphia. It doesn't make it any writer. You know? <laughs> you know, how good's my English right now? Uh, oh, God. You have, you have right, our right. I'll stay up. And, <laughs> From from this point, hey, let me tell me tell me how do you guys pronounce the the scientific name of the jungle carpet python? Morelia spelota chanii. Chanii. Yeah. It's actually Shane. Chanii. 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 Okay. Chanii. There's a guy by the name of Richard Wells. Um, he's a mate of mine. He was the one who actually described them. Um, and it's it's. I'm trying to think who it's named after. I think it's named after Wellington's daughter, something like that. And her name's Shane. And, and so everyone says Chenny Eye, and they say Bredley and Bredley Eye and all that. It's actually Bredley is the way it's pronounced. Um, Bredley. Right. You know, but that's all right. It's all good fun. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that's my Philadelphia accent coming out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, hey, 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 it's not Philadelphia, mate. It's Philadelphia. I've, yeah. I've invented a new one for you. Start that. That's uh, good. That would be awesome. Uh, no, that's all right. That's all good. All good for a laugh. That's right. So it's it, it's, it's so, funny listening to you talk about the uh, the monitors that you have because you're like you have a couple lace monitors where I think there's like eight lace monitors in the country if I <laughs> know correctly, and in the United States I think a normal lace monitor is like $10,000, and a Bell's Face lace monitor is like $15,000. Yeah. So it's just weird for you. To, it, it, it's just another aspect beyond the snakes of, you know, lizards are rare over here too. So, Oh, yeah, awesome. yeah, for sure, for sure. And and it's, I suppose it's like um, uh, we, we go through, and you, well, I mean, we've got a quarter emerging, you know, and I think Zachy is about to, to get all excited. Um, you know, you talk about blue tongue morphs over here. You know, we've got some <laughs> amazing morphs yeah. in our blue tongues. Um, yeah. And you know, we've got black blueies here, and I've got a, we've got an undefined, um, undefined, more unproven morph here at the moment of a, a calico um, eastern blue tongue, ah. which has started off as being a, a completely normal looking um, baby, and then each shed, yeah. it just goes gets lighter and lighter and lighter and now it's basically a yellow blue tongue. Um you know, there's there's pied um blotch blue tongues and you know, all of these other things that are over here that and there's a lot of stuff that hasn't really been publicised yet of some of these other other morphs of blue tongues that are kicking around over here. Um 
And you talk about, are these going to be the next big thing? Yes, they will yeah. be. Yes, they will. <laughs> because oh, they're awesome. They don't want to bite. They're friendly. They're easy to keep. They're, they're like the ultimate pet lizard. You know, I, people ask me, oh, you know, should I get what I want to get my first lizard? Blue tongue, straight away. Shits right. all over a bearded dragon. So much better than a bearded dragon. <laughs> so much better. You know, exactly. they're easier to keep. They're friendly, and they actually deal with periodic handling. Because you've got to remember, the the person that's getting their first lizard, that lizard is going to sit on their couch while they're watching television with them. They're going to take that lizard everywhere, sort of around with them, and all the rest of it. And that's what they're going to do. Yeah, bearded dragons don't necessarily do really well with that. You get some beardies that do really well with it, and then there's other beardies that don't. Um, Whereas blue tongue lizards, that's just like that's what they do. They're just friendly and they're happy and all the rest of it. I mean, we've got a I've got a blue tongue lizard here that's called Horse, and I've had Horse since 1992, um, oh, and he's 760 millimeters long, and he's seven and a half centimeters across his head in width. Okay, so he's a big blue tongue, and Horse can't do any wrong. All right, and it's, it's like a bit of a running joke here. This horse has absolutely stuffed three or four other blue tongues that we've had because he just bites their tails off and eats them. Um, he's a he's a huge lizard, um, but but he's my pet. He's, he's my pet. He's, he can't do any wrong, you know. He can. <laughs> he could turn around and chomp down an albino or something like that and go, oh, that's just horse, you know. Oh, yeah, you know, what are you doing? No worries. He's, he's all right. You know. he, he he was just staring, you know, whatever it is. But so he's he lives with a, another blue tongue these days, and he's he's not um, not allowed to play with others anymore. Um, but you know, it, it's it, they're amazing critters, and they, they you know I can hand that lizard that absolutely savages other blue tongues. I can hand him to a four year old kid and go, here, hold this. And he just sits there, and he loves it. He loves being patted and, and all that sort of stuff. And I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing over here and saying that they really love being patted, which probably isn't the case. But um, he tolerates it really, really well, and he doesn't stress out about it. So that's probably a better way of describing it. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but they, they work so much better for kids. Um, you know, I've got a crocodile I've used in demonstrations, and that, that crocodile thinks it's going to kill me until I've got a, a tie rope on its jaws. And the minute I get a tie rope on its jaws, he goes, oh, okay, I'm in I'm in show mode now. And he calms down and basically sits there and just tolerates being patted and, and, and touched by people and all the rest of it. But until that, that jaw rope's on that crocodile, no, <laughs> no way. That crocodile wants to kill you. <laughs> that crocodile was still right, a crocodile. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's interesting seeing the changes in these animals and, and you know, how how people can interact, and I think that um, education through touch and education through feel and education through exposure is so important. Whether it be a blue tongue lizard or a carpet python, or you know, in the in the case of where you guys are, you guys can be educating the local kids at the school with things like you know, you take your carpet python along, you you give a positive experience to a child, a child. And yeah. you've got somebody who's then going to act as a conservationist for the rest of their life. You know, they're going to worry about, you know, whether whether they throw that piece of rubbish in the bin or whether they just let it go out into the gutter. You know, and if we conserve the habitats and do those sorts of things, we make for a better earth coming coming forward. So, 
you know, it's really important what we sort of do and how we how we behave. And at the end of the day, if we do the right thing, it means that there's going to be carpet pythons out there for you guys to find over here. Um, yes. Whereas yeah. if you just trash the habitat, it's it's going to be terrible for everybody. Yeah, I, I, the more and more that uh, that I'm doing this, uh, I'm kind of drawn to uh, to doing more of that. Where going out and talking to uh, kids, um, I've done it a couple times, and it was actually uh, it was really fun, you know. Because probably like you were saying earlier about how you know if we're coming over there, we get all excited because this is the first time we would see a snake and hold uh, you know in the wild like that and sort of feed you and you know it's just like this. Uh, you know, uh, relationship that kind of happens to where, you know, it's, it's like when I would do music, you know, you get up on stage and, and you would play and people would get inspired by that. And then that would make you more inspired. You'd play better and just, you know, just would, you'd feed off of that. And exactly. uh, yeah, I get kind of excited when, you know, you're talking to, to young kids and the first time they see, you know, a snake or a lizard or, you know, a reptile and, and they're, thoughts of <clears throat> what they think it is and then you know you break down that wall and uh you know show them what they're really about and you know it just changes and you can oh. see in their head you know like wow this is why i love doing wildlife demonstrations over here because it's a job that as a job i get paid to go out and change people's lives like that you know it, it's yeah. absolutely amazing you know you I mean, there was, I was doing a uh, talk last night and there was a, a person there that was incredibly concerned when it come to dealing with, with snakes. And I had cuddles, which is the, the olive python I had from I got from Graham Gear. And, you know, again, another thing where I've, instead of calling it Fang, I've got this, this nice friendly name. The whole idea of these things is to try and break down that, oh, it's a snake that's going to kill me type, type attitude and, and have right. this friendly sort of attitude and give people a good friendly experience and this person was she was looking at an albino carpet and she was looking at this thing and a couple of other bits and pieces and she was like oh she goes oh, i really want to touch it i said well come out at the start of the night come up and just touch the tail and then walk away so she's walked away and all the rest of it by the end she's holding by the end of the night she was holding <laughs> cuddle right. wow so she's gone from somebody that was really unsure about whether she even wanted to be in the room at the start of the night and was really nervous to somebody right. that's holding a 10-foot olive python around their neck. You right. know, it's it's a pretty awesome experience. And she turned around and she said at the end, she goes, thank you so much. She goes, you, you've changed me for the better. She goes, now when I see a snake, instead of getting really, really scared, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to call a snake catcher and get the snake catcher to move it on for me as opposed right. to maybe getting a son to put a shovel through it or something like that. Now, right. if I change if I change one person every month for the rest of my life through teaching, and, and you know, it's not much. If I change one person, so it's only 12 people a year for the rest of my life, they're all going to then change their habitat, uh, their, the way they deal with people and the way they deal with animals as well. And they may not save snakes, but they might save a lizard or they may say a turtle or, or anything like that. Or they just might decide that they're going to try and take green power as opposed to um, something else and save the environment in some way, shape or form. And all these small little things make a big difference in the end. And that collectiveness of everybody working together is going to turn people's attitudes around. And we're seeing a change in, in the Australian population through a lot of the work of, uh, of wildlife demonstrators, you know, where... You know, you don't kill snakes anymore. 
you know, they, they're not hanging snakes on fences anymore. They're not killing snakes. A lot of people now, instead of seeing a snake thing, they reach for as a camera as opposed to reaching for a shovel. You know, <laughs> leaving that awesome. snake alone and not trying to bite it, not trying trying to kill it. It's fantastic. And then from yeah, you yeah. from you guys yourselves, I guarantee that you guys have affected people. You don't even realise this, but I guarantee that you guys have affected young people through whether it be this radio program or selling them a carpet python and actually dealing with them as a human being and having some respect for a new person that's just starting out. And we've all been guilty of it, and, and I'm included here, where you jump down the throat of somebody who's who's just starting out and they, they haven't done quite enough research and they haven't done this and they haven't done that. And sometimes we forget how new we really are. We were new once too. You know, We, we sure. didn't know, know what we know now. We we were new as well, and you know there's no such thing as a dumb question. And, and sometimes this this Never. reptile hobby gets so nasty at ourselves, where we we're, we're sort of nailing each other on things to to, to try and <clears throat> try and get people to do the right thing, and we come across like asses. If we were a little bit nicer to everyone and, and sort of spoke to people how we wish to be spoken to, I think there'd be a, a much nicer hobby, and a lot more people would be get a positive experience out of all of it as well. Yeah, as our agree. good friend as our good friend Bill puts it, tolerance. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure, yeah, for right. sure. There's a, oh, yeah. a um, there's a video going around Facebook at the moment. It's just um, I put it on my shared it on my page. Um, <clears throat> of a, I don't know who he is. He must be a ball python guy over in the states. It's um, he he sits around and does these rant videos in his car, and he talks about newbies and tolerances and stuff like that and you know people oh, just Ralph. listening and yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah i think that's his name yeah he's done just done this one on, on newbies and stuff like that and we me and my wife watched it this morning actually and we both said yeah fuck yes <laughs> that's spot on that's exactly what we need to do you know and and good on him you know and little things like that it, it affects things and you know you turn around and you give a positive experience to a kid you that person that kid that you've just given a positive experience to might be the next Tom Crutchfield, it might be the next Kevin McCurley, it might be the next Brian Barcheck, it might be the next Hal Cog or Rick Shine. You don't know that at the time. You don't know who you're dealing with. But if you give them a positive experience, they're forever going to be grateful for it. And and likewise, if you give them a negative experience, they're going to remember that too. All right, and they're going to remember you for being a, a, a an asshole, you know. And, and I'd much rather be remembered for not being an asshole, you know. Yeah, and, yeah, me too. And, I, and don't get me wrong, I've got an ego, and sometimes that ego gets in the way of of um of doing the right thing by people. Sometimes, yeah, you get these regrets in, in, in over the years, and I'm trying now to be a little bit more pacifistic, I suppose, if you will, and not try to get into as many blues. And you know, I suppose the one thing that I've um <clears throat> I've learnt, and I, I I started when I I started keeping reptiles. After about five years, I thought I knew a fair bit, and then after ten years, I thought I knew a lot, and then maybe twenty after twenty years, I started realising maybe I didn't know quite as much as I thought I did. Now, twenty five years in, I'm starting to realise I don't know much at all, and <laughs> you know, it, it's sort of the longer you do it, the more you realise you know bugger all. You know, and you're always learning. And, you know, every time I go out into the bush, I learn something new. Every time I talk to somebody, I learn something new. And just because I haven't witnessed it yet doesn't mean to say it's not true. And 
doesn't mean to say there's nothing else to, to go from. And all of the people that I look up to that um, that really know a lot about animals, they're almost all the same. They all sort of say the same thing. Yeah, I don't know that much. You know, I don't know that much about this. You know, I, I could always do more research into this. I could always do more about that. You know, um, right. And you know, it's, there's always stuff out there to learn. There's always stuff to try. Yeah, you know, I equate it to um, sometimes I'm talking to, you know, uh, python breeders over here in the States. And, you know, I'm 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 the type of person that's always trying to push things forward or try to learn some more, try to figure out, you know, what else can be learned uh, from from these reptiles. And sometimes when I'm talking to people that have been doing it for 20 years, it's well, this has worked for me for the past 20 years. Why am I going to change? And, you know, I mean, I don't know. It To me, that becomes boring. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I just think that there's always something else to learn or something to push it forward. Because I think if the people that, you know, started working with reptiles in captivity at the very beginning f- were that way, we wouldn't be where we're at today, if that makes sense. Um Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, yeah. look, we used to have almost this recipe, I suppose, in Australia of how how to keep snakes. And it used to be you put the set your thermostat to thirty degrees. You have a blue globe or two blue globes in the in the corner of one end of the enclosure, and you had substrate that was gravel, and you had it in fish tank. That that was how you used to keep snakes. That was how right. you did it, and it worked. <laughs> and and you know what? There was pioneers. By, there was a, a pioneer by the name of Brian Barnett, and. I say he's a pioneer because he is truly a pioneer. He has bred more and more reptiles than so many people understand in this country, you know. And and Brian is he's a he's one of those people that I'll always look up to and I've a hell of a lot of respect for him. I've known him since I was a, a young teenager and you know, I'd ring him up on the phone and I must have been such an annoying little shit to talk to at the time. <laughs> I sit back right. and I bloody cringe, <clears throat> and you know. But, but Brian would always take the time to talk to me and go, "Oh well, you know, no, Scott, I think this is what you should be doing, or you should try this, or you should try that." And he was one of these really meticulous sort of keepers that kept a lot of records. But he always published. He was he was a publishing a person, and he was a president of the Victorian Herpetological Society. And he used to write papers, and he was really into scrub pythons and, and taipans and Chapel Island tiger snakes and all that sort of stuff. And some of the papers he's written, is where he's actually weighed the food items before he feeds the snake. So he has food item weights, and then he's got growth rates that go with those animals for, for two years, three years, and, and actually has all of this data and, and how to keep them and all the rest of it. And he pioneered a lot of egg incubation techniques, and he was a pioneer of this and that and the other. He's the first person I know who ever bred black-headed pythons in Australia. He's one of the first people that really knew how to breed scrub pythons in Australia. Um, <clears throat> probably the first person to breed coastal carpet, uh, coastal taipans in Australia with any regularity. Um, you know, he's he's one of those fantastic guys. Neil Sonneman's another guy like it. There's all these guys that that were real pioneers in the 80s, 70s, 80s and, and 90s that were breeding a lot of these things before they um, were being bred in captivity commonly. And they did it right. with with using, having to build their own enclosures and do this and do that. You couldn't go and just go and buy some heat cord and a thermostat off the shelf. You know, your, your mm-hmm. thermostat, you were getting out of an air conditioner and you were rewiring it to make it work and using thermometers and, and all sorts of stuff. So, you know... 
there's these pioneers out there that did things, but then you talk to those same guys today, and a lot of them are using tub systems, and they're using heat cord, and they're using this, and they're doing that, and they're overwater incubation and sim tubs and all these sorts of things that they're doing. So they, you know they're adapting to changes. But mm-hmm. who was the first person to to go? You know what? I'm going to put my reptile eggs over over water and see how it goes. See if that's better than covering them in vermiculite. Well, right. You know, right. until somebody does that, until someone has a crack, no one else is going to do it. So, right. to, make, to the people that are pioneering and trying different techniques and trying things, yeah, sometimes it's going to fail, but at least they're having a go. You know, and we're not going to really learn or improve if we always do exactly the same thing all the way through. So, yeah, yeah by all means, if you think you've got something that might be worth giving it a go, give it a go. Try it. If it doesn't work for a season, doesn't work for two seasons. Oh well, you can always go back to how it was working, you know. But mm-hmm. you're not going to learn, and if you if you keep doing things exactly the same way as you always have. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Amen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I told you I start ranting. Don't worry. <laughs> no, 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 no. Again, uh, I, lo- I love the rants. <laughs> yeah. 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 I do. I wanted to make sure that we got a couple questions in before we we cut off. There was one of when you're going out into the field, right? And we're yeah. back into uh, herping and field herping. What yeah. what are some of the things you have to make sure that you have that maybe people would overlook? Okay. So, so the seriously, there's two things that are like the. Well, I'd say three things are the most fundamental three things. All right. Okay. The first one, decent attitude. Go out there with a good attitude. Go out there going, you know what? It doesn't matter what I'm going to do. I'm going to have fun today. I'm going to enjoy myself. So that's the first one. The second one is to have a compression bandage with you. All right? Because everything, every now and then, something might stuff up and you might fall down and, and hurt your ankle and twist your ankle or something like that. If you've got a compression bandage, you could you can at least wrap it up and strap it up. Um, if you happen to get a, a fang in your finger because you've you've fallen over and landed on a snake or something silly like that, um, then you've got a bandage there to be able to bandage that up as well. Um, so a bandage is very important. The other thing is too, when you're looking for carpet snakes and, and, and other pythons, you're generally going to go out at night. So you're going to have a torch with you. So it's a really, really, really good idea to have a backup torch or a backup battery with you because I can right. tell you it really sucks going out in the bush, walking out three or four kilometres out in the bush. And then having your head torch shit itself. Right. And then now you're in the middle of the bush, you know, it's midnight, two o'clock in the morning, and you're two kilometres from nowhere and you've got no way of getting back because you don't know how to find your way back. Um, so, you know, people die. People die out in the bush. You know, it's, yeah. It, I suppose that the thing is Australia, and it's the one thing that, people don't quite understand I suppose is that you know mobile service right we we had this this um, this last trip that we did we had three of us that were away and there was a, a young fellow from Sydney by the name of Jake and Jake Jake's mobile phone was with a different provider to mine and, and, and Aaron's and we all had different phone providers but poor Jake's phone didn't work for two and a half thousand kilometers of that three and a half thousand k's you might as well just wow. drone it out. <laughs> there was no service, no right. no service at all. Okay, so wow. you know you go into these places where you know I think there was a sign the other day, uh, one of the signs. Oh, please be warned. There's no fuel for 190 kilometres. 
Oh, wow. So no fuel, no shops, no nothing for 190 kilometers. Wow. Okay. Right. So, <laughs> so you have to. So let's say you broke. Let's say you broke down half. Yeah, you, you broke down halfway along. You know, you're, yeah. you're lucky. I mean, we we drove. I'm trying to think what road it was. We drove a road that went from probably six about 600 kilometres of road. And we passed two cars in 600 kilometres. Wow. Wow. Two cars yeah, in 600 would, k. So how far is 600 kilometres? That's from where? Is it what? How far is Philadelphia from the from New York? Uh, uh, I don't know. I want to say what? What would you say, Owen? Four, mm-hmm. three hundred miles? Four hundred yeah. miles? Maybe. I, I mean, so there you go. So, you, so can you, that's pretty close. So can you imagine <laughs> driving from Philadelphia to New York and seeing two cars? No. <laughs> and, no. And also, too, not having any phone service in that whole space. Wow. No what, mobile what, phone. No mobile phone service at all. Wow, uh, no. <laughs> right. There's there's no Facebook updates or anything like that, mate. You're, you're out there in the bush. Damn. <laughs> People are going to be <laughs> You know, there's no Facebook updates or anything like that, you know. Oh, God. Yeah. You know, it's funny, right? You see people, you see people that don't go out in the bush that much, and and you see them out there, and they they like almost having withdrawals. They they keep picking up their phone in in hope that they may get service. You know, like well, dude, just throw it in the glove box of the car and forget about it because it ain't. Yeah, you're not you're not talking to anyone. You know, that's it. Right. You know, so I suppose that it's hard to explain, but until. I suppose, I mean, for for you guys over in the US to understand that, you know, I mean, if you can imagine and fathom driving that sort of distance, you know, I suppose it's something out of like a post-apocalyptic zombie movie or something like that, where you <laughs> literally don't see anyone for for 600 kilometres. Um, I remember, I don't know, did you guys get anything, hear anything about the Bali bombings that, that happened in uh, maybe 2002 or 2003? In Bali, there was about 140 Australian killed, Australians killed in a terrorism accident. Do you remember hearing anything about that? Okay. Uh-uh. So anyway, so it was all over the news over here, as you can imagine. You know? And right. I was out in the field when it happened. I didn't know about it for oh. two weeks. Oh. No news, no nothing. There, there was nothing for two weeks. I didn't know anything about it. So I'll come back and there's the things on the news about these wreaths of all of these Australians have died in these these bombings of these bars that these these people have just gone into bars and just strapped bombs to themselves and blew themselves up in in, in bars, and you know we knew nothing of this, and I suppose it changes. You know these things could, things could happen all around the world, and when you're out in a place like that, you got no idea. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen yeah, right. because there's nothing out there for you to know. Um, so uh, I suppose that the remoteness is something there that is something that's um, it's pretty difficult to, for a lot of people to apprehend um, and comprehend, I should say. And from that, you need to, to have some sort of safety things in place where you you take spare batteries, you take some first aid equipment with you. Um, ideally, you want to go out with somebody who who's sort of got half a clue about what they're doing, um, and especially if they're going to take people out into out into the desert. Um, right. You know, I got dehydrated in three hours. 
Jesus. Three hours. Wow. Um, <laughs> you know, if that if what had happened to me happened to to me a hundred years ago, um, they would have been putting flowers on my tombstone, I suppose. Right. That's nice. So, you know, that's that's the other thing I suppose to look at. So it's it's um, it's potentially dangerous, but it's it's not Mm -hmm. dangerous if you do things the right way and and doing things with a bit of intelligence. So right, you know, just being prepared. And and, and look, I'm sure I could go out into the US and get myself into all sorts of trouble. You know. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Oh yes. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's, I suppose it's the same thing. You know, I could go into Arizona or something like that, and I could look at somebody the wrong way or something and then get shot, I suppose, you know. You guys seem to, everyone seems to be carrying guns in the U.S. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> 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 it's just yeah. wild, wild. I saw a thing the other week about gun deaths in the U.S., and I'm just like, oh, my God. You know, well, we have, yeah. I think we have 200 homicides a year in Australia, and, it seems like you guys almost have that in New York. In, wow. You know, yeah, I stay in my snake room. There aren't any guns there. So, oh, you know. beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Worst thing is you get a, get a missile from a, um, a, a Liat yeah. or something like that. No, it's, normally it's a white lip, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> they are cranky, bloody things, too. They are evil. So, yeah. Here's, here's a question, though. Uh, when you're out yeah. there and you are in that remote, um, area and you're not getting cell phone service. Does it feel different? I often wonder, like uh, you know, like you, you're. I've been in some remote places, but not nearly as remote as what you're talking about. And it just has a different feel to it. Like you know, there's no cell yeah. service, or you know, I, I don't know. Is it is that the same? It's it's funny, right? Because you when you drive in places like that, um, you 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 flick your fingers up when you see another car. Because you flick your fingers up on the on the just on, you raise two fingers up on the steering wheel and just sort of give the people a wave, but so they sort of see you. Now you sort of do that for two reasons. Because and the first is because you want to make sure that they've seen you. Because you sort of go into this almost when you're driving long distances, you almost go into like this semi semi comatose state, so to speak, where you're just sort of driving on the road and you're all almost on autopilot, so to speak. And you sort of really want to hope that they've seen you. And then the other thing is too is that you sort of hope that you know and you're sort of saying hello, you know, because you haven't seen anyone in a long time. And right. the other thing is too is that if you see a car broken down on the side of the road out there, you generally stop because right. you may not have seen they may not have seen anyone for a day, you know, um, or or longer. Um, the other thing that you know, I always carry water in the vehicle. You know, and when I say water, I'm carrying like 20 litres of drinking water each for each person in the vehicle. Um, right. Because if your car breaks down, you might be stuck out in the desert for weeks. You know, before somebody finally knows that knows where you are and, and then goes out and, and searches for you. Um, so if you're if you're going out herping, you make sure that you're carrying water with you. Um, you tend to stick to tracks as opposed to to just going off into the scrub. Um, If you can stick to a track, at least then you've got a way of finding your way back. Um, Carrying a a handheld GPS is a really good idea as well. GPS pointing your car so you know where your car is and then then using your GPS to get you back. The problem is is that you need to have some form form of bushcraft because GPS is uninfallible. Batteries die and all that sort of stuff. And if you've relied on your GPS to get you to that point, and the battery's dying in the GPS, how are you going to get back? 
Um, right. So there's all these sorts of things that you've got to sort of take into consideration. Um, right. You know, and it's really easy. It's surprisingly how easy it is to get lost in places like the desert and stuff like that, where you sort of go off and wander and think, yeah, it's everything's low and you know I can see from kilometres and, and everything's fine, and then. You know, you go over a little rise and then you go over another little rise and then you walk down a kilometre from that rise and then suddenly that little rise that was a few little rocks has now turned into a, like a range or something like that or an outlier that now you're not quite sure where you are and you can get turned around pretty easily in the bush. Um, so then, you know, at night you might be using stars to try and get you back to where you were meant to be or, you know, you use tape or flagging tape or GPSs or any of those things to try and get you back out of it. So it's pretty pretty full on um, in, in those sorts of places. Is there a different feeling? Um, I always sort of, I like going out in, in vehicles that are of decent quality. I don't like going out in, in, in vehicles <laughs> that are a bit rough. Um, right. <clears throat> I was doing a... Uh, chasing some animals to a place called Lawn Hill National Park, which is about 400 kilometres off the main road, um, the main sort of drag. And it's a gravel road for about 230-odd kilometres, I suppose. And it's quite rocky. Now, I had one spare tyre, two spare tyres with me, and then I had a puncture kit, and then I had a compressor. Um and so I got to Lawn Hill, that was that was all good. And then about oh, would have been maybe a kilometre coming out of Lawn Hill I got a flat. I was like, Oh yeah, okay. Oh. I've still got two spares. She's 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 mm. apples, that's all right. So, you know, didn't just throw it in the back and change the tire and, and then kept going. And then I reckon it would have been forty kilometres more. I had a blowout. I was like, Oh, wow. that's not good. That no. kinda sucks. So now, now I've got I've got no spare tires left. I've got one tire yeah. that's shagged. I've got one tire that's that's stuffed, and I've got one tire that's got a leak. And now I've got four tires on the vehicle. I'm sitting there thinking, shit, I've done that in 40 k's, and I've got 200 kilometres left to go. What do I do? Do I go back to where I was and then hope there's somebody there who might be able to fix my tire, or do I run the gauntlet? You know, well, I, I got here without getting any flat. Surely I'm not going to get another one. 50 kilometres. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Oh, I, I looked across, and Adam Elliott was in the car with me. I looked across at Adam, I looked at him, and he looked at me, and we just gone, fuck, that's not good. <laughs> yeah, that's all you really can do Believe it or not, I'm doing my best not, not to swear to, but... Um, yeah, I, I looked across at him and he looked across at me and we've just gone, oh, oh, that's not good. And there's a feeling you get where you're like, you know, right, this is this is actually kind of serious. And I suppose this is the one feeling that I get now whenever I go out into these remote, really remote areas. I do have a somewhat nervousness, I suppose, when I go out into these areas. And, right. and then when I get back into... Oh, I hit the bitumen again, <laughs> and and then start. I'm going to see another car again. I start to feel a little bit better, um, because you know it it and things like that happen. Now, as it happened anyway, um, I use I, we put the spare tire back on the on the car, and mm. the, the the tire that just had the flat in it, and 
drove it along. We dropped the air pressure in all the tyres down, so we, we dropped them down. Didn't go over about 60 kilometres an hour. Um, and then had the compressor out, and we were plugging the compressor onto the car every every sort of 20 kilometres or so, and then pumping pumping the tyres up again that were, were going flat. <laughs> and eventually we um, hit the bitumen and then sort of limped into town that... In a trip that should have taken us about three hours, ended up taking us sixteen. Um, and then got the tyres fixed, and and then happy days. But we saw some cool critters on the way, and it was an experience. So, you know, oh, wow. anyone that you walk away from is a good one. So, you know, <laughs> exactly. that was pretty cool. Um, That's awesome. And then I suppose the other one is that you know you have a few injuries while you're away. I I remember I was walking along, and I we were we'd rolled the swags out for the night. Usually what we stay in is, is a thing called a swag. Now, do you, have you guys ever heard of a swag before? No. All right, so it's basically like a one-person tent, all right? But it it sort of, you have your sleeping bag or your sleeping mat and all that sort of stuff all inside it, so it just rolls up, and then you just roll it out, and that's what you go to sleep in. You know, it's got a mozzy, mozzy thing on it and a little pole on it, and, and that's, that's what you sleep in. So you literally just roll it out, and you, you sleep on the ground. Um, there's no no hotels or anything like that. You don't worry about any of that. Right. And besides, you you don't want to stay in a hotel when you can stay where the animals actually are. You know, you're better off staying right. where the animals. Spend <laughs> yeah, more yeah. time looking for animals. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and, makes sense. You know, it's it's good. You know, and then you know you roll up swags, and and then suddenly there's snakes. I've had snakes curled up sleeping underneath my swag over the time. There's <laughs> yeah, all all these cool things. Anyway, so we've rolled out these swags on this um on this river system and the we were probably uh maybe 15 15 meters uh, 15 15 20 meters away from the the edge of the river I suppose so we're, you know, we're a bit off a bit off the river and this is northern northern australia tropical australia so you know crocodiles are a, a concern but we were quite away inland and you know there's not meant to be any crocodiles in this particular river at this point and we're like oh well you know you know, there's freshwater crocodiles, but there's no salties, so you know, don't have to worry about the big swamp geckos. We're okay. And anyway, so we're walking along, and and then we were eye shining along the river and seeing things like laverack turtles and uh, water pythons and northwest carpet pythons and Stimson's pythons and olive pythons and all that sort of stuff, and seeing all these really cool critters. And had a really good night and all the rest of it. Anyway, I walked back across this causeway. And the causeway is where the road goes down over the um, where the creek goes over the top of the the road, and so there's no bridge. It's just this concrete that goes through uh, through the through the water basically. Um, and what happens is because the water runs across the top of it, you get algae and and plants and stuff like that start to grow on it. It becomes quite slippery. And anyway, so I was walking back, and you know we'd we'd had a pretty good day. I was in a really good mood and really really happy and. Then I've gone ass over tit on the on the causeway, and the legs are given it, uh, slipped out from underneath me on the algae, and I smacked my head and landed on the concrete <clears throat> in the back Ow. of my head, and opened up oh, about uh, 40 mil, so an inch and a half gash in the back of my head. Um, so again, you know, we're 350 kilometres from the nearest medical attention, so just go to the back of the car, get the super glue out, pinch the head back together and, and just glue it up and happy days she's fine <laughs> had a headache for the rest oh, of the night God. 
Um, but, you know, that, that's okay. So you, you want to have a decent first aid kit. You want to know what you're doing out in the bush and you, know, you go out there with a good attitude and you see lots and lots of really cool animals and you get these crazy little stories to tell people about, you know, <laughs> blowing out tyres and, and all that sort of stuff and... You know, oh, wow. it's, it's fun. It's it's good. It's just, it's a really good experience, and to see see what these things actually do in the bush is is just absolutely amazing. And and really get out there and experience it. And and not enough Australian herpers get out into the bush and and see what see what's around. You know, they they're content to look at their snakes in their boxes and and all the rest of it. And and don't get me wrong, I love looking at snakes in boxes, and and mm-hmm. I I really love keeping snakes and and, and other reptiles, but. Nothing beats going out and seeing him in the wild. You know, I, no. I can't wait till I finally see that old pelly python just sitting, sitting on a rock ledge up in up in Arnhem Land. You know, that, that's going to be like a, <laughs> be one of those moments, mate, that I'm just going to sit there and just go, "Yep, this is this is about as good as it gets out in the bush." You know, so, wow. Um, you know, oh, it, it will happen. It will happen. I'm I'm convinced. It may take a long bloody time, but it is going <laughs> to happen for sure. Now, just before we get cut off, I was just thinking too. I just we've got to say something. Um, yeah. Uh, Scales and Tails magazine in the US, uh, in in Australia over here. Um, they do a pretty cool magazine. I know you guys have talk, spoken about it before. Um, yeah. Steve Castell, who's one of the owners of, of uh, Scales and Tails. I was, I was talking to him and I said we've got to try and do something for these guys over in the US about this magazine. And he goes, oh, what can we do? And I said, well. So I'm going to go on this radio program. I said, well, why don't I give it a bit of a plug on there and see what you can do for them? He goes, all right. So he's come to the party for you guys. So if you guys, uh, if your listeners send Steve an email, now the email is admin at scalesandtails.com.au, all right, mm-hmm. and say Marilia Python Radio in the subject line of that email, he will mail you guys out a free copy of the magazine for the first uh, five people that um, email him and say Marilia Python Radio so you guys can actually get a, a paper copy of the magazine and see what it's like. That's awesome. Right too. So a little thing that we did for you guys over there to, to try and have a look. And I think what he said is uh, after that is um, any of the other people that miss out, um, if they email him, he'll he'll give you a link to a um, to a uh, electronic copy of one of the back issues of the magazine as well, so you can have a bit of a look and see what it's like. But I mean, it's it's seventy six dollars Australian um, now with the the dollar, the Australian dollar versus you guys. I think that works out to being like I think we're about seventy five cents to the dollar uh, to the dollar for you guys. So I think it works out about uh, fifty dollars US for six issues or something like that. Maybe fifty five dollars US for for six issues of this this magazine, and it's a pretty cool magazine, and mainly yeah, centred awesome. on Australian species um, and field herping and stuff like that. And you get to see photos of, of stuff in the bush, so that, that's yeah. a pretty cool thing. So. I just got um, well f- for a long time. I was getting the e magazine, um, but there's something call me old fashioned. I don't know. I want the actual copy in my hmm. hand so uh i i finally ordered it and i got the one uh the, the new one it's the one where you actually uh you uh did the uh article on um venom doc the book venom doc on no, brian's book <laughs> yeah um so yeah. i actually i picked that up because of that <laughs> so <it was> great. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> um but uh what an awesome magazine i mean if you listen to this podcast 
and you do not have a subscription to that magazine, you're just you're missing out because I mean it's everything that we're talking about. You know, just I read the uh, the account where they were you know out in the field herping trip that they were on there. There was an article on Owen Pelly pythons. It's just yeah. I'm like wow, this is just the greatest ever. Oh my gosh. So, uh, it's not a bad magazine, is it? No. And Australian herpers are writing in it as well. Sorry, on. Yeah. I mean, if you're into Australian species, why wouldn't you want a reptiles magazine from Australia? Duh. <laughs> so, yeah, know, exactly, exactly. Kind of a no-brainer. So, yeah. You know. And I mean, and what an awesome thing for them to do as well, to, to turn around and go, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll, send, we'll send out five copies over to people in the U.S. Um, yeah. to, to say they can have a bit of a look and see what it's about, you know. Um wow. And then hopefully, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, these magazines that are run by these these people, the only way they survive is if if people support the magazines. Mm. You know, at the end of the day, we we can we all give and give and give and give and give, but we can only give so much if if we if no one ever sort of gets behind people in the hobby, and it's like US Ark and things like that. If people don't ever give, then you the the hobby's never going to gain from from things and. You know, there was that Texas Rattlesnake Festival um, that that happened last uh, year and uh, the year before or whatever it was, and you know they're they're doing these things that are out there to try and sort of conserve. Um, you know, if people get behind and sort of can help help some of these things come along, it's it's a great thing for everybody. So, you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, so Pardon me. Um, I I can tell you, like I said, firsthand. First of all, thanks to Scales and Tails, and thank you to you, Scott. And uh, that's an awesome thing for our listeners. So if you're even remotely, remotely interested in, uh, you know, Australian reptiles, uh, it's definitely uh, a pickup that you want to, you know, support these guys so they can keep doing it, you know. I'm going to be greedy on this one. I want you guys to do it so they keep making it so that uh, I can keep reading it, you know. So... Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that they're they're thrown in the towel or anything like that. I don't want to make out what they're going to do. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not suggesting no, that. No, at no, all. no, no. Um, but yeah, you know, we've got to get behind our fellow hobby, fellow hobbyists and and follow people that are supporting things and 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 likewise supporting things people like yourselves. I mean, you guys are doing things that are getting um, a wider readership out into the community and, and understanding and stuff like that. And I mean, I listen to I listen to you you guys on the way to work each day and and all the rest of it, and then I'm sort of bummed by the time that, you know, the, the thing's finished, because I'm like, well, now what am I going to listen to? I've started listening to, like, some of the other the other reptile podcasts out there as well, and, um, you know, you know all the, all the various ones that are out there, and I, I learn stuff about you know, all of these things. I mean, I, I'm not really into morphs or, or anything like that. I'm much more of a person that's into the, the wild-type animals. Um, right. But at the same time, I'd much rather listen to to someone like Nick talking about uh, genetics on on how morphs and chimeras and paradoxes and and all of these various things out there are sort of formed um than than listening to to two guys just talking crap on talking about local sports or something like that in Australia I'd much rather learn something and 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 come away learning something as opposed to um sitting there and not understanding so you know you guys should be commended by getting people on to talk about stuff and, and, and listen and learn and you know you you know some of those things you have with Ari about the Bol- uh, Bolands pythons and stuff like that mm. mate that makes me want to go to New Guinea and go and see Bolands pythons that's for sure <laughs> you know, that sounds like 
awesome thing to do, you know. Um, yeah. And but then also too, and you, you talk about the way you're keeping things, and and I mean, I never really thought about cycle feeding, um, mm-hmm. and yet now I'm sort of got this cycle feeding thing going through in my head, and I'm like, oh, maybe I'll give this a go. This sounds this sounds intriguing. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, whether whether it comes off or not, I don't know, but I'm I'm curious. Right. Um, sure. And you know we can all learn from each other on these sorts of things, and and opening these lines of communication up is such an important thing. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so this is really we haven't really done a lot of field herping stuff, have we? <laughs> we've sort of we've touched <laughs> on it here and there. We've we've sort of gone to shit on this a bit, but um, I'm just looking back over this thing that you sent me through about some of the topics, and we'll sort of go through some of these things a little bit. Um, okay. Oh, so try and get thing. back to get back to things. But did you have any other questions you want to get through before we get cut off? Before we go back down some of the the, the scripted stuff. Um. Let's see. What did we? I mean, uh, I think this, the heavy hitting things we wanted to do. Or I think this is. I was know. interested in this. Um, you know, yeah. it's it. Everything is all relative. But if you could field herp anywhere in the world. Uh, you know, where would you go, and what would you hope to see? Because you live in Australia, and that's where we want to go. So where yeah. do you want to go? <laughs> Kakadu and go get a bloody Owen Pelly pot. That's a fair answer. Um, <laughs> um, um, yeah, look, I mean, oh, my after listening to... to I mean, I've gone back through a lot of your back catalogue and been listening to a lot of those. And mate, listening yeah. to that stuff about Waimana and 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 going up in the hills and seeing Boland's pythons sitting on clutches of eggs, that'd be a pretty epic herping trip. Yeah. Um, I mean, as being, a, I mean, I'm a, I'm an lapid nut, so I mean, I'd much rather go and see venomous snakes. But Jesus, Boland's pythons are pretty cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd lo- I'd love to see Mangsheng vipers. Um, so, you know, I'd like to go up into the Mangsheng Mountains. Um, I'd love to see bush masters and in Costa Rica. I'd love to see black mambas in, in South America, South Africa. Um, there's there's so many things out there that I'd love to go and see. You know, black tail rattlesnakes in Arizona. Um, you know, I can I can sort of just keep going. Which one do I want to see first? I don't know. <laughs> I like them all. <laughs> I like them all. Um you know, but I, I suppose, I mean, I've got because we keep Australian species here. Um, I really like seeing seeing how Australian species live and how they how they interact with the environment. Um, yeah. There's a there's uh, I'd like to see I'd like to see a lot of the uh, snakes that live in Australia, but also see the New Guinea versions of the same species and see if they're utilising the same habitats. So I'd be really interested in looking at. Um, scrub pythons, amethystina, and seeing seeing how they utilise habitats in in Papua. So I'd love to see scrub pythons in New Guinea, um, right. and and those sorts of things. And then you know taipans in New Guinea versus taipans in in Australia would be a good one as well, and a few of these others as well. So um, I think PNG is probably the the one herping destination that I'd really like to to cut my teeth in overseas. Um, but at the same time, there's so many other places that I'd love to go and have a look at as well. You know, I keep getting people sending me photos of being to Bali and going over to Komodo and seeing king cobras in in Bali, oh. and then going and got Komodo dragons in, on Komodo. 
that's got to be a rite of passage as well, too, doesn't it? No. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a pretty go. good thing to go and see a, li- a lizard that can eat you, you know? Or, or, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That'd be pretty I cool. Keep, I, keep yeah, I, I keep thinking, I look at a Komodo and I think about Australia 25,000 years ago where we had Megalania. You know, yeah. you know, there's a seven metre long Komodo dragon that eat people, that used to eat wow. people effectively in Australia. That would have been a pretty cool thing to see in the scrub. Um, you know, or a scary thing, or cool or and scary at the same yeah. time. That would be over. That'd be the last thing I'd see. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I I can't bring Eric to Komodo. He'd be eaten really quickly. <laughs> so. Mate, yeah. they've got hobbits there already. What are you on about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like seeing my kids. Was, wasn't wasn't Rinka? Wasn't Rinka? There was a hobbit on Rinka. Yeah. <laughs> was it Rinka? There was a hobbit. I'm sure there was one of those places. There was a hobbit, and they all died out. So no. you know, it'd be like a homecoming for Eric. Sumatra had Sumatra. They had hobbits too. Yeah, I'll be good. Oh, Sumatra. Okay. Well, I knew it was you know the lesser Sunders there somewhere. So you know, I'm releasing it back into the wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it, that's it. He'll be like a giant over there, you know. he have been outcropping oh, yeah. over here, over, the, over and getting taller, you know. Yeah, they would think he's I was got tall and white. He's like an albino giant morph <laughs> of a hobbit. Yeah. You know? yeah. Oh, that's well, awesome! <laughs> you do realise this could end up being a running joke. So when you get over here, I'm going to be cutting, calling you the albino giant hobbit. Anyway, <laughs> God, yeah. that's gonna happen. I finally found it. I finally found it. Oh my gosh. Hold on. Stop it. It's the albino. I'll be like, I found a morph. I found a morph. Perfect. Oh, yeah. And and like, yeah, you know, like the other thing as well, like you, you know, you, you've got all of these other things out there. There's all these books that are out there and stuff like that that are good and, you know, you, you go out there and you're, I mean, I, I look at a book and I read a book and I, I look about this and I look at that and I go, oh, look at that, how awesome is that critter? And then you look on Facebook and all these people are sending these these things about, oh, I've just been out here and I've seen this and you're like, oh, I wish I was there to see that, you know, it's like, yeah. fuck, <laughs> you don't know what to do. So. Um, yeah. But yeah, definitely, I mean, on my list, I think New Guinea is probably the, the highest place to, the highest person place to go and look, so yeah. Well, as a Morelia guy, I can't say that I blame you. I can't say that no, I blame you on that no, one. But. Well, they're Somalia, aren't they? But, you know, we're not, we're not going to go down that road this week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, not really. Still have. But, um, okay, so I think I think that's, I mean, that's all I got, I think, for now. Let's see. I think for now. Well, you say for now because we're going to have to have Scott back on. When he oh, plays yeah. his own Pelly Python, or sooner. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I'll take a video and I'll tell you what it's all about at the same time. Dear God, yes. <laughs> we have to. We uh, have to I'll just do. I'll do another shit staring video. I go, how good is this? You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I suppose. Yeah, oh, mate. There's so many, so many things, but. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't even know where to begin with some of these stuff. There's just so much stuff that's so cool out there to go and see. Um, what about you guys? What do you want to see? Oh, man. I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab in the dark and say the Hobbit wants to see an Imbricata. Yes. Yeah, the <laughs> wants to see an Imbricata. Whether it be alive, dead, in a tree, or in someone's cage, he just wants to see an Imbricata. Oh, I've got, we've, got, we've got four of them downstairs. See, there you go. You know, oh, wow. It's like, yeah, good luck pulling yeah, them away they, from you know, the yeah. cages. 
Yeah, they they look like they just look like coastal carpets with a, a, a slight twist. Go and have a look at a coastal carpet with a bit of a, a line down the side, lateral line down the side of it, and then that's what the Invercargill looks like, you know. How dare you! The Invercargill. <laughs> 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 hey, 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 hey! You didn't even put it. In, you don't think Invercargill's that good enough to have it in your calendar? That just, ooh. <laughs> yeah, see that, Owen? So, I reckon, I reckon hey, your Imbricata hey. love is just is not really there. <laughs> my, my love is, my love is with the instead of the Imbricata. You so. know what it is? Is that I never thought that any we did that the first year and nobody and nobody submitted pictures. Put a picture. Yeah, but know? the thing so, is, right in the in your rules, you say you can't have wild stuff. Well, we're did I put that in there? Really, yeah, in your wild, yeah, yeah had, only only captive animals. Had to be your animal because you don't have to be your animal. Well, we didn't want to using other people's pictures. Well, I yeah, yeah, yeah. I, no, I understand. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. But it's but just if like you found the damn thing in the wild and took a picture of it. I'm pretty sure we're going to consider it. Like, oh, yeah, but it's not. But it's not in the rules, though, is it? You know, like, it's no. Not but there. I'm not going to put that many damn hairs about it. Uh, oh, okay, all right. Well, that's okay then. That's fine. <laughs> that's okay. Well, I, I will send through a whole heap more wild there you stuff go. out there for you. You know, yeah. but, you, know I, 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 you sort of look at these things and go, oh, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, I suppose at the same time, in your defense, how many wild carpet snakes do you really guys get to see? So you know. Exactly. And how many wild carpet pythons are people in the United States, which are most of the people submitting to the competition, going to have? And they yeah. should yeah, be but, you know, well, except for like Justin and Nick. But you know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> mate, I have got to catch up with Nick. I eh? I would I love to go field turfing with Nick. Adam's told me some absolute cracking stories about chasing chasing critters with him. So, um, and I've, I've taken Justin out out before when he has been in Brisbane. So, um, you know, Justin's a really cool guy to go out with, and you know, you always learn so much going out with people like that. So. You know, it'd be great if we could get like a whole heap of people from the US come out, and we get like Justin and Nick to come along, and and then sort of get maybe myself and and Adam to to come along as as the Australian people. And mate, I think it'd be absolute hilarity. We'd ensue. We'd oh, see a lot God. of cool things, but we'd all get some fantastic experiences out of it. And you know, I'm sure that we'd learn a hell of a lot from you guys as well. Yeah, it's going to be, be awesome. the ultimate carpet fest. It's happening. Yeah, it's is. coming. 2016, it's happening. We're going to pick the dates, and then if you want to come with us, you have to buy your own plane ticket and then get over there. That's yeah. pretty yeah, much yeah, what yeah, we're yeah, going to well, do. Well, I mean, yeah. if we organize it right, we organize it right, yeah. you could, like, hire a bus. <laughs> hire, like, a 15-seater bus, right? Yeah, and then you, get, then you get all you all you guys together, and, yeah, you just have the bus drivers, and then just be just insane. <laughs> it's like one big herping trip the whole time, you know. That'd be crazy. Yeah, that'd be crazy. Um, and then yeah, also too, right. like your your costs would be would come right down because everyone's sort of staying in together and stuff like that. So, you, you know, your costs yeah, would come yeah. down and, and you'd you'd have a ball. But um, you know, you've got to try and get um, Adam Adam on on at one stage as well. Uh, we Nick, he, you know, I think Nick called him the Silverback at one stage on one of your programs. <laughs> He's a hairy, hairy dude. I yeah. Um, but he's he's a really cool guy. He wrote the um, I did a, a book on a lapids, and he did the the python version of the, of it as well. And yep. mate, just just doing the stuff like that and and running around the bush with him is is, is an awesome amount of, awesome amount of gear. And the the I suppose the thing is that 
when Aaron and I get together, it gets a bit competitive every now and then. And um, you know, he he tries to to find more things than me, and I try to find more things than him. So, sort of hilarity and and competition and 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 lots and lots of critters ensure uh, and sort of end up happening. You know, <laughs> it gets quite um, quite competitive, but it just means that we all get to see a lot of shit at the end of the day and, and see a lot of stuff. So it's a, it's a really lot of fun. So that's yeah. a win-win for us. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's a win-win for everyone. You know, and yeah. and he can take some absolutely brilliant pitches. You know, I mean, he uses a cannon, which sort of sucks, but you know, other than that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't picked it, oh, I'm a Nikon photographer. Um, but you know, he, he uses a cannon, so I'll I'll just let him. You know, he's even got a. You know, I've got to give him credit there because he's using inferior gear. So. Um, <laughs> And he can still reproduce. Okay, I like it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, mate, he, he takes a cracking shot, that's for sure. And you know, he, I mean, so many of those photos in his book are, are wild animals. Whether it be, I mean, I've got a few photos in there. Whether it's my photos or Adam's photos or some of the other people's photos in there, you know, there's heaps of wild imbricata in there and all this wild, wild stuff that's out in there. And you know, in habitat photos and habitat photos in those books, and gives you a bit of an understanding of what these, where these things actually live in the bush. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. Mm. So it's good stuff. Yeah, I just picked up both those awesome. books actually, and uh, I'm quite enjoying them. So, it's good stuff. Um, well, we're probably going to get cut off at any second, so I just want to take the opportunity to thank you for coming on and chatting with us and letting us live vicariously through you and your experiences and uh you know yeah, <laughs> sharing all your survive. yeah <laughs> sharing well, your stories with us and uh you know thank you to scales and tails for doing the magazine uh giveaway and uh you know um you're always welcome back you know you say the word and you're on you know hopefully you find <laughs> your own tellies <laughs> soon and that's it mate that's it well there's, there's a couple of other things there's a couple other things I want to touch on really quickly. Um, yeah. One thing is my wife has gone into business with uh, another lady in Cairns who's a, one of the most amazing wildlife artists out there. And they're producing T-shirts and stuff like that. So they've got python T-shirts and, and all this sort of stuff. There's some rough-scale python T-shirts, which are absolutely amazing. Um, and the, the website is www.ouranimalsouraearth.com. And there's a shop okay. on there with these amazing, amazing um, paintings and stuff like that that are on T-shirts and jumpers and stuff like that. And you've got to go and check them out. So I'm, I'll put the, the link up on um, in the Marilia chat now. Um, so if you want to go and check that out, I'd really appreciate it. And uh, even better if you buy something, but it'd be even better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because the more stuff that's out there for that is the more stuff that's out there for me to be able to go herping again. So, or she goes herping. Either way, it's a bonus for all of us. Um, right. So yeah. So that's that. And um, yeah. So and also too, if anyone wants to contact me or anything like that, I'm pretty accessible on Facebook or anything like that. And just um, you know, sometimes I don't get back to people straight away, but I will we'll get back to people fairly quickly if I can. And if someone's got any questions or anything like that, and they really want to know about what what something does in the wild or something like that or how something lives, you know, shoot me a message or something like that on, on Facebook or I'll, I'll do my best to answer it. Or if I don't know, I might be able to direct them to somebody who does. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Very cool. Um, yeah, I'll put that uh, I'll put that link over on the uh, the Morelli Python Radio Facebook page and the website and all that for that uh, website yeah. for sure. 
Um, Uh-oh. Yeah, they have a they have a blue tongue skink T-shirt. So no, uh, yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's gonna happen. No, they've got some, they've got some really cool stuff on there, eh? Um, they, and they're always updating it as well. Um, no, Rebecca's a Rebecca and Ty are, are pretty productive when it comes to doing these things. They're doing some pretty cool stuff, and you know they're they're, they're producing stuff that um, they would want to wear themselves. So it's not it's not stuff that's crappy quality or anything like that. It's all good quality gear and and really nice stuff. And they're produ- it's it's Herpers producing stuff for Herpers, you know. So yeah. Oh, I'm gonna Done. buy a black yeah. python shirt. That's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, <laughs> I'm looking at it myself now. Oh, <laughs> look at this reptile shirts. Crap. All right. Well, we're, we're, anyway, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we will yeah, we will so. look at that. So, so sure. uh, yeah. Sure. Um, like I said, I think it's gonna get cut off at any second. So, again, thank you so much. Appreciate yeah, uh, sure. taking the time and chatting with us and. Yeah. Well, I hope I haven't ranted for too long anyway, so... Um, oh, we love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just trying to think what else. I'm just looking at this list here of some of the things out there that you've, you've got. Um, probably the best time of year depends on what pythons you're after. You what time of year is the best time of year for pythons. Um, I reckon March is probably, overall, is the best time of year to be herping in Australia. Um, basically the reason March is the best is that the females have all dropped their eggs, the eggs have then hatched and the babies are out and about and they haven't quite necessarily gone in for the hibernation down at the southern end of the country. Um, <clears throat> and the other thing that's really good about it as well is that um, you've usually had it up in northern Australia, you've had your rains and all the rest of it and so you've still got activity because there's still moisture around. Um, quite often okay. you'll find that um, activity is is moisture related in the north and the west, so where it's hotter and drier, rain's really important. Um, and then in the south, it's 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 mainly temperature dependent. So if it's really cold down there, you're not going to get much stuff out and moving around. But if it's if it's warm, you get stuff moving. Um, with diamond pythons, you know diamond pythons are out during the day, basking during the day, and then they're mainly active, moving around at night. You don't tend to see that many diamonds moving around during the day. They tend to be more sitting curled up. Um, with inland carpet pythons, again, you see them moving at night and out and, and coiled up during the day. Um, in Brisbane, with, with carpet pythons, though, it's the carpets up here, they'll, they'll move around all day and then they'll curl up, but then they move around more at night. They, they tend to move into more exposed locations at night, more so than during the day. Okay. Um, jungle carpets, um, I haven't found that many in the wild, so to, to make a call on what they're doing is a bit difficult. Um, I have found a lot more jungles, though, in ambush at night, and I've found them moving across roads at night as opposed to... Um, I haven't seen one out during the day um, at all. Um, scrub pythons, you see them out during the day, and you see them out at night. Um, they're, they're pretty, pretty sort of ubiquitous. They're, they're doing things all the time. Um, uh, top end carpet pythons, Darwin carpets I've only ever found them out and about at night I've never found them out during the day um, and I, th- I suspect that's probably a temperature related thing um, you know you you get most days in, in Darwin even in the middle of winter you get days that are up around the 30 degree mark um, in the sun obviously it's hotter again so 
having that temperature come up even higher higher the the animals are looking for shade and and, and cool cooler conditions generally so they tend to have be more active at night and the other thing is too that the predators it's a bit harder for predators to see them uh, birds of prey and things like that are seeing them when they're out and about at night as opposed to during the middle of the day um, right Imbricata are out during the in the late afternoon. Um, you get them curled up in the late afternoon, um, and then you'll get them crossing roads uh, at night. Um, Brettles, um, you see them occasionally basking on ledges on the edges of uh, during the day, and in trees as well. And then at night you'll get them moving around as well, creek beds and stuff like that. They're they're an amazing snake to see. So. Awesome. Yeah. I, I would love to see them. Yeah. yeah. And it gets pretty cold mm. there at night, right? Where they're from? Oh, in in winter, in the middle of winter, it can get below below zero. So that's, wow. that's bloody cold. Um, yeah. You know, and then during that, and then that same day, the, the following day, will get up to can get up to thirty degrees. Um, so it's it's pretty amazing. But the thing is, is the rocks that rock ledges and things like that. You know, those rocks heat up and so they act as a big heat sink, a big thermal sink and you know, back in those crevices it can be sort of 25 degrees, even though it's zero outside it's like 25 degrees in the back of those crevices because the rocks swarmed up and, and that just sort of radiates heat out, out during the night and keeps the animals a bit warmer um, so yeah but I mean <laughs> awesome animals, I mean carpet snakes are, I mean we, we, we joke about them and all the rest of it, they're, they're a pretty amazing animal to see in the bush um, I, I haven't seen one fighting yet. That's one thing I've, I'd love to see. Um, I've never seen a carbon python fighting. Mm. Um, I'd love to see.